Greetings, ladies and mentalgents, and welcome to this narration of the miniseries Three Fleets, written by Alt Cipher. This series has 15 parts and has been taken from Reddit with the author's approval. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. Part 1 You sterilized three Triluic worlds, killing countless Savians. The alien on the forward screen spoke, and a translation scrolled across the bottom. Admiral Chung stood straight-backed with his hands clasped behind his back. The primitive parts of the Admiral's brain were screaming that the thing on the monitor was a giant bug and he should be running or fighting. The Admiral's gaze never wavered. We cannot allow your species to continue this war against a member of the Union. The assembled species have come to stop your conquest of the Trilloc. The bug continued. The Admiral stood quietly for a moment before speaking. Where were you? The Admiral's voice was level but quiet. The facets on the bug's eyes flickered downwards as it caught the translation. What? Where were you thirty years ago? Where were you? The bug's mandibles twitched and it passed a serrated forearm over its foreleg. We did not understand, nor do we care. You will cease this war thirty years ago. The Trilloc came to my world. Where were you? This is an invalid Union planet, and you will cease the hostilities immediately. The Admiral could not speak the bug's language, but the nervous twitching and louder clicking made it clear. Thirty years ago, the Trilloc invaded my world. Earth. We were much more primitive then. We thought visits from beyond Earth would be peaceful. Instead, we were enslaved. The Admiral's eyes never left the screen, but his mind was elsewhere. I was a young man then, when they came. I watched as humans were taken as slaves to God knows where. I watched as they destroyed our militaries in the blink of an eye. I watched as my own sister was killed by an orbital bombardment. So, I ask you again, where were you? The bug's head swiveled twice before responding. Previous history has no bearing on your unsanctioned war against the Invalid Union. I will have to disagree with that. That previous history is exactly why we're doing this. It took us over twenty years to kick him off our planet. We slaughtered them by a shipful. When every last Trilloc was dead and every last collaborator hanged, we found that our rage was only beginning. You admit to these crimes? Oh, I admit to more than that. After the cleansing, as we called it, we began taking apart their technology. We were very quick study. Their engines, their weapons, their maps to their homeworld, all of it. We went to work with fervor my people have never known. Within ten years, we had three new massive fleets and a few less moons in our solar system. Your crimes are endless and your death will be swift, the bug said. Perhaps... The first fleet was called Task Force Fidelity. Their mission was to find and return the billions of humans taken from Earth. They have already repatriated 200 million from what I hear. The second fleet was Task Force Defiance. When we took over the Triloic vessels, we found that we were not the first planet that they had plundered. We were number 18. Task Force Defiance had the mission to free the other 17 enslaved worlds. Your fleets are the cause of the missing worlds, the bug asked. Yes, but that's not what you need to focus on right now. 
This is the third fleet. Our name is Task Force Vengeance. Our mission is much more simple. Complete destruction of the Trilovic as a people and as a civilization. The monk's forearms frailed and shocked. Finally, it spoke. Your mission is murder. The, the Invalid Union will, will stop this genocide. We read about you in the Trilovic database. This uh, union of yours. We understand you're required to help defend member planets. Houses of worlds, hundreds of species. Before the fleet left off, there was a lot of discussion on how to handle you. Should we consider you guilty by association? Or should we give you a pass since it wasn't actually you invading Earth? The issue seemed to revolve on a single element. Did you know what the Triduac did? Was it a matter of you condoning their actions, or was it a matter of ignorance of their actions? Should you be judged as the Triluac were? So I ask you one last time. Where were you? End of chapter. Part 2. The Interview. Transcript of video recorded six months after the liberation of Della. A female Della Hahn sits down in a stool. Translation provided by Fleet Services. Della Hahn, sit here. Producer, off screen. Yes, there is good. Okay, please look into the camera and tell us your name. Sa'ala'eh. That might be a little difficult for our systems to translate. Can we call you Sally? No, that would be fine. Okay, Sally. You can start whenever you like. What should I say? Just tell your story. My story? My story begins uh, 12 oh. years ago. I was born in Della. We had been under Turk rule for six generations at that point. My mother had become pregnant without overseer approval. As punishment, she was sent to the Wellacola mines when I was stopped nursing. It was a hard life for her. I found out much later that she had died eight months after arriving. My father... My, my father was always sad. The love of his life had been taken. I know he loved me very much, but... Sally looks away from the camera and presses a tentacle over her face. Sorry. It's, it's okay. T take your time. My father raised me alone. There was only two other children in our camp, and I did not get along with them. As all life does, I grew to adulthood. The Turk sent me to a different camp on my ninth birthday. I was an adult then, and ready for an adult's work. I never saw my father again. At the new camp, Lecot, I met proper noun untranslatable, and we fell madly in love. We would sneak off after lights out to hold each other. He gifted me with three damn strawberries. One evening, it was the most beautiful gift I'd ever received. My beloved was transferred to a new camp three days later, and I never saw him again. Video interrupted and resumed some time later. This, this is all so much more than you want to hear. You're doing great. This is your story, and you tell it however you want. As my mother before me, I'd become pregnant without permission. I knew what would happen. Only this time the truck would sentence both mother and child to inevitable death. 
Because the father wouldn't be there for the child. Yes. I couldn't let them do that to me or my child. They had taken my childhood, and I would give them no more. When my time was near, one of these wise women in the camp came to me to help me deliver the baby. I asked her to help me escape. She refused. I asked her to help my child escape. She refused. I asked if she had children, and she said she had eight. All with drunk permission. She called me a stupid child, said that I'd made life that much worse for the others who wouldn't want to become mothers. She would never help me. Her job was to make sure my child and I survived, but no more. That delivery was the most painful thing that I'd ever been through. My daughter was born healthy, but a slave. I knew I could not condemn her to the same life that I had. When I looked into her deep black eyes, I swore with every piece of my being that I wouldn't make any sacrifice to keep her safe. As my daughter grew, I knew our time was drawing short. I had no idea about what was beyond the walls of the camp, but I knew what was inside the walls, so I risked everything and fled. For thirteen days, my daughter and I ran. We slept when we could. I fed on the wild plants in the deep forest, and she nursed whenever I could get her to. I knew this would not last. I could hear the patrols out looking for us from time to time. They were becoming more frustrated with each passing day. An infant and a nursing mother should not be able to elude the Turlock security forces, and they were embarrassed. Our luck, as it does, ran out on the morning of the fourteenth day. We'd come to the edge of the woods. There was a wine clearing ahead of us, and I could hear the Turk closing in behind us. If we stayed put, they would find us. Their embarrassment had grown so much. I knew that they would kill my daughter as I watched them take turns abusing me, and I too died at the edge of the woods. There were rumors in the camp of Turk eating infants. Video interrupts. The other option was to make a run across the clearing carrying an infant. There was no way I could outrun the soldiers. Could you have made it without your daughter? Maybe. But there would be no point in living without her. Was turning to left or right an option? They would have still caught us. There was no place to hide, and no other options. I ran across the clearing as fast as I could whip my legs. Translated note. Appendages of tentacles possible. Could carry us. I made it nearly a third of the way across before the first Turk broke the tree line. They shouted to each other as they had found me, and the chase was on. I thought my heart would explode from the fear or exertion. My daughter had grown quiet, sensing her mother's fear. I hit a tangle of grass just as I made it halfway. I turned as I fell to protect my daughter, but then pulled something in my leg. The turnip caught up in moments. I held my daughter tightly as the tears clouded my eyes. I've never felt that helpless or hopeless. To look into a child's eyes, I know that there was nothing that you could do to save them. Then, I saw the most beautiful sight that I'd ever seen. On my back, in that forest clearing, I saw thousands of brilliant orange fireballs in the sky. I thought that it was some kind of meteor storm, or that the gods had finally decided to cleanse our planet. I prayed that it would deliver us a quick death and kill the Turk. But it wasn't a meteor storm. No, it wasn't a meteor storm. One of the meteors crashed into the clearing a few tens Tens of meters meters. from my daughter and I. The Turk were frozen in fear because it wasn't a meteor. 
The first metal creature pulled an angry-looking device up to its shoulder, and painful bright light and sound leapt into the face of the turret nearest me. I still remember seeing his head melt and then disintegrate as he stood over me with his venom sacs pulsing. The other Turk had finally figured out that they were in danger and began to raise their weapons. As the lead metal creature reached me, it glanced over at the Turk bodies lying on the long grass, then turned to me. He lifted his faceplate, and I saw a soft pink face on this giant beast. He tapped a glowing square in his arm that played a recording. It said... Do not be afraid, and that they were here to help us fight the Turk. The creature pointed at himself and said the first foreign word that I ever learned. Human. Translator note, phonetic translation of human. The high omens brought death to the Turk and hope to the Dalahan. Some feared that you would be worse masters than the Turk. Instead, you shocked us all by giving us our freedom. Why would you do this? What do you mean? Why would you people come to my planet, risk your own lives, fight an entire army for a people you don't know? For a people that don't even know that you exist? Humans are born with a strong sense of fairness. We just, uh, we don't like injustice. I'm not well-traveled. Slaves usually aren't. I cannot imagine another species would have risked so much for strangers. Task Force Defiance liberated Della in four days. Over 50 million Trilloch were killed or captured, and the entire population was freed for the first time in 70 Earth years. End of story. Chapter 3. Gone to Market The rain fell as greasy streets. Hundreds of signs of excitable noble gas shot broken reflections off the puddles that gathered on the flat surface. The press of bodies in the street was so close, it was hard to tell where one body ended and another began. Orders of a dozen different worlds fought to be the first to assault a person. High above, the underbelly of the clouds reflected back a muddied orange glow of the city. My friend, my friend! A barker at a stall shouted at any and all a likely customer. He strained to be heard over the general white noise of the crowds and wares around him. A round folia, a runt that was just over two meters, waddled to the stall. The barker tapped his forehead and bowed by way of greeting. My friend! The barker shouted louder than strictly needed as the folia stood on the front of the stall, we have some rare goods from around the cosmos. Any service for any taste. A discerning gentleman such as yourself would be a fool to take custom to any of these other swindlers, and I can see that you are no fool. The folia hardly scratched the side of his rotund bedding as he looked across the squat table in front of him. He reached out and turned the bauble over and examined it and placed it back down. He took a step to leave. Please, my friend, please, the barker said. This is but a small sample of our inventory. The barker half turned to wave his arm at the storefront, half hidden in the darkness beyond the stall. I'm sure that there are many choice wares which will no doubt pique your refined senses. The folia lazily glanced at the storefront. Please, the barker said, smiling. The folia nodded once and began navigating his immense girth past the stall and into the storefront. The barker snapped at one of his lackeys and followed the titanic customer into the store. 
Inside the shop was dark. The air hung heavy with a cloying mustiness. Deeper in the darkness, things moved and shuffled about. The folia followed the barker deeper into the shop as his eyes adjusted. Shelves crowded close with trinkets, large and small, from across the galaxy. The folia glanced from one artifact to another, with his glaze resting no more than a moment on each. His ponderous progress never wavered from a steady stolid ahead, undeterred by the shop's inventory. The barker watched his customer ignore even the most tempting targets. My friend, surely this... The barker said, motioning to a lighted whirling device. It is nothing like you've ever seen before. Its heating rays will bring a refreshment to your soul. The folia grunted once and continued forward. Ah, yes, I see that you have much more refined tastes. What about the telly and rotor? Hmm, I say that it warps the flow of the living energies in your body to being a harmony and health. The barker called his customer's attention to a dozen more items, most of them rated little more than a gruff sneer. Several of them barely even elicited that much of a response. Near the back, the barker pulled aside a curtain and waved the folia through. Behind the curtain were stacks of cages, each two meters tall with barely enough floor space for the occupants to take two steps. The folia turned to see the barker behind him holding a stubby weapon in one meaty paw. But your game, friend, the barker said having thrown aside the cordialness he'd showed on the street. I've never seen a folia as short as you, and would have just thought that you were just a runt, but no folia would miss an opportunity to talk my face off. Then followed me back here without a question, no. So why don't you tell me what's really going on? The folia's hands were spread wide, showing that he had no hostilities. Workers. The barker stared at the bigger man in murky light in the storeroom. Workers? You mean you went through all of this for a few slaves? I don't believe you. Every person in the province knows my wares. You could have bought any of them without all this trouble. Not by, the folia said. Oh, so you came to rob me. That makes more sense. Well, you aren't the first. This is a dangerous neighborhood, and I've lived here almost all my life. Tesla, forward, the folia shouted, and tooth and darts fired from his chest, hitting the barker. The barker's face seized an erectus grin as electricity poured through the thin metal wires, trading from the darts. The smell of burnt hair and urine clawed its way through the room. The barker slumped to the ground, and as the last the bottle lightning ran through him. When the barker woke, he found himself bound to a chair with his arms tied behind him. The folia was across the room, but something didn't seem right. The barker spat to clear his mouth of the bright taste of blood. His head felt like it had been pummeled by a tuckox. I see you're back with us, the folia said, turning to face Barker. As the folia stepped into marginally better light, the Barker could see what was wrong. The folia had removed his head. Underneath was a different head, round and pale and somewhat vaguely familiar. The Barker noticed three others standing behind the knot of folia. The new slaves, some kind of primate race brought by the Terriluk. My name is Wax, the Nodifolia said, and I am a human, just like these three. Human? That was what the Terluk called them. My mission, Wax continued, is to bring these people home. Unfortunately, my orders don't say anything about you. Rex knelt down on the grimy floor in his over-engineered folia suit and eye level with Barker. 
So that means what happens to you is at my discretion. If I let you live, you'll talk, and then we'll have the authorities chasing us. No, my friend, the barker said. No, he would never tell a soul. Hush now. I'm not done. If I kill you, then I am a murderer, and it'll draw a lot of attention. I could call my boss, but he's not reachable right now. I'm like most people. I'd rather not work any harder than I need to. So you're going to do something for me. Anything, my friend. Anything you need. You are going to buy a prophet of a new religion. I'm thinking we'll call it, oh crap, it's humans. Has a nice ring to it. You're going to spread a good word that humans don't leave people behind. You're going to proselytize the idea that holding humans is a fantastically bad idea. You're going to preach the message of freeing every slave before the humans catch you. And while you're doing all of that, I'm going to go and make sure that you have enough disciples to rival even the most ancient religions. We will hear the prayers every time a slave sees one of our ships. Oh crap, it's the humans! We'll receive the liturgy when our agents find hidden rooms like this one. Oh crap, it's the humans! We will convert every heretic to the true faith. Baptized in their own blood, if we have to. The entire universe will come to believe that humans stand together, and to hurt one is to attack all. The bad news for you is that the new religion sometimes requires sacrifices. Now, I'm not going to kill you. It would be hard for you to preach when you're dead. No, you get to love. But I need to make sure that you don't forget that the others witnessed the message. Wex's teeth reflected in the dim half-light that was the last thing that Barker saw. End of chapter. Chapter 4. Back from Market. The three rescued humans huddled together in the hold as Wex lifted off from the packed spaceport. No alarm had been raised over the missing shopkeeper in the Brown District. No one had stopped a folio towing three bedraggled humans to the port. The walk from the district to the port had been dull, boring, and everything Wex had hoped for. As the last fragments of the atmosphere fell away from the Ford screen, Wex turned to face his new passengers. He removed the giant helmet that served as a head of the folio disguise that he'd worn for three weeks tracking the shop with humans. My name is Wax, he said, pointing to himself. Can you understand me? The oldest rescued slave nodded once briskly. Good. Wax stood up and began removing the rest of his foliar disguise. The bodgy arms fell away, the bulbous belly dropped to the floor, and the legs crumbled to a heap. Under the animated costume was a tall, athletic man in soaked t-shirt and shorts. They didn't make that suit for comfort. I must have lost twenty pounds in sweat. Wex scratched his head and then ran his fingers over his scalp. How about some food? Wex stepped forward and the slaves, as they flinched away from him, Wex stopped short and then knelt down. Sorry, I guess you've had it rough. Wex held out his hand with his palm up. The oldest former slave slowly reached out and Wex had touched his hand. Wex smiled and nodded, hoping that he was showing friendship to a person who'd been through so much. Wex pointed to a cupboard above and behind the three rescued people, then slowly stood up and opened the cupboard. He removed four silver packages and six red cylinders. 
He took the hole and sat down cross-legged across the floor in front of the three rescues. Wexter opened the first silver package and removed the still fresh sandwich. He took a small bite, pretended that it was the most delicious thing that he'd ever eaten, and handed it to the first rescued human. She was a slight girl, with barely restrained hair and wide, wondering eyes. She sniffed at the sandwich Wicks had given her. Wicks opened the second silver package and repeated the exercise for the next rescue. An older man with a matted beard and too many scars across the back of his weathered hands. The third sandwich went to the final rescued slave, the thin boy who barely acknowledged it. Wex opened his own sandwich and began eating. The three others slowly copied him. Two bites into his own sandwich, Wex picked up one of the red cylinders and pulled the tab atop it. The crisp hiss filled the small cabin and made the young girl jump. Coke, Wex said. He took a sip and passed the can to the girl. She bent to smell it, and but the tiny bubbles jumping out of the can speckled her nose, and she flinched backs. Wex had a second can and was handing it to the old man who stared at it like it was dredging up an ancient memory from an ocean's death. Coke, the old man said. He drew the sound out as though he was taking it for a test drive. Coke, no Pepsi. The old man smiled to himself and gulped down half the can in a single long draft. Wex handed the third can to the young boy, but got no more response than with the sandwich. The girl's eyes lit up when she'd taken her first tentative sip. She took a second, a longer drink, and smiled. Yeah, you guys look pretty young, Wex said. Guess you were born off-world. They were, the old man said. I was taken. The girl had turned to the old man with fear in her eyes. Wex could see her hands trembling, holding up the soda and sandwich. It's okay, Leela, the old man said to the girl. We no longer need to live in fear. He turned to Wex and said, Our owners would punish us for speaking without permission. Leela saw her mother beaten to death three years ago for that. She's been quiet ever since. Max chewed in silence, letting the passengers take the lead. I am Bao, and this is Milo. I've watched over these two for a while now, the old man said. How did you find us? I am part of what is known as First Fleet. Earth fought back against the Turliac, and we won. Eventually, we stole their technology and made our own ships. My job, my fleet's job, is to bring home any humans. This doesn't seem to be much of a warship, Bao said. I'm on detached duty. I heard a rumor of a merchant with three possible human slaves for sale. Took a shuttle and this fat-ass suit just to investigate. Leela tugged on Bao's threadbare shirt. She made a motion with her hands to fast for Wex to follow. Bao turned to look at Milo, who had set the sandwich and soda on the deck. Bao gently placed his hand on the back of Milo's head and patted softly. These children have never known freedom. They fear it as a kicked dog fears thunder. Wex looked at the two younger passengers. We really just started rescuing our people. The fleet has a number of services that can help them, though. Neela looked wide-eyed between Wex and Bao. Milo rested his head on his knees, his back against the bulkhead. 
Mixed asked. How much do they know? Bao cocked his head and said nothing. Mix continued, about, well, us, about humans, how much do they know about what they came from? Very little, Bao said, but not much. Our last master was a firm believer in cutting the past. Didn't want us to get any ideas. Well, Mix said, I'm not much of a teacher, but we'll be in the shuttle for a couple days. Maybe we can find something interesting. Mick spun a monitor around and tapped on the screen. He flipped through menus too quickly for Bao to follow. Myler had lifted his hand slightly when he caught the screen move from the corner of his eye. This is one of my dad's favorite movies. His grandfather would watch it with him over and over. So, of course, it became one of my favorite movies, too. He smuggled the portable player into our camp when I was little. We'd have a movie night when the guards weren't too anxious. I could still smell the wood chips on the floor, a little underground theater that he'd hung out. Mix paused as he found the name, lost in thought. I hate those bastards. They took our culture and our souls. Mix caught himself and glanced at his three passengers. Anyways, as he said that, he hit the play icon. On the screen, blue text flowed against the flat black background. A long time ago, in a galaxy far... Far away. End of chapter. Chapter 5. The low ridge in front of them seemed like a mountain. The extra gravity on this world pulled at them like an angry lover. Even with the augmented power suits holding them up, they could still feel the planet reaching into their guts, dragging them closer. Damn it, wheezed Novak. Yes, he wheezed. This place is going to kill me. Tighten up, Novak, Gunny said. We've got at least two companies of hostiles over that ridge. They'll be waiting for us. Both sides had long ago expended their ammunition. They had gained and lost the advantage so many times. Nobody knew who was winning. The technology that they'd each brought from their home worlds had fought as long as it could before it was consumed and exhausted. The fight continued on. Gunny, you really think those janks are waiting for us? BFC Javer said. No clue that that's what I'd do. Dig in and sit tight. Let the other dumb bastards hump their ass through the crap while you rest up, Gunny said. They laid against the cool grass in the early morning light, struggling to breathe in the oppressive gravity and thick air. They'd long since given up hope of relief and now fought on because they knew nothing else. Crash drones and emptied vehicles started the barren field around them. Spent casings and shattered glass crunched underfoot when they walked. Bodies of both sides lit the ground. You know the weirdest thing about this planet, Dabrowski said. I really don't, Dumbo, Novak said. Next, not a damn thing here is any kind of neck, Dabrowski said. Next, you haul your rear halfway to the fecking universe and get tripped up on necks, Novak asked. Spaceships are too much for Dumbo, O'Malley said. But the dumbass knows necks. A few of the marines snorted and tried not to laugh. Man, Dabrowski said, it ain't that. Space is space. All looks the same. But you see a fat foot or two, purple lizard with no neck. That's fecked up. Two alien species at war on a planet foreign to both. Each side had crossed the endless void of space, flung themselves through the abyss by technology that would have been incomprehensible even two generations ago. Despite all the technological marvels that had brought these two species together, war 
leveled the field. Okay, we move in ten, Gani said. Why the hell are we doing this, Gani? Novak asked. Because our mission is to liberate this planet, and Command, in their infinite wisdom, decided to send us to take this little patch of heaven. No, Gunny, I mean, why are we fighting for these jerks? There's nothing on this planet worth crap. The Indigs are barely three feet tall and can't fight for crap. They can't even make a goddamn tank. Why are we out here dying for them? Gunny's head dropped into a low, angled sunlight. Sun. Gani said, in the softest any of the marines had ever heard this mean bastard that led them. When a bully beats you up and takes your lunch, buddy, you can bear it. But when that bully picks on a cripple kid, you gotta stand tall, or you're just as bad as him. I know this is a crap deal. You want to leave, I won't stop you. Head on back to base camp. I'll even write you a recommendation to whatever service you want. But I'm staying. I'm going over this fucking hill and killing every goddamn junk that I see because I fucking hate bullies. I signed up for the second fleet to teach these jerks that you don't pick on cripple kids. You gonna decide for yourself if you will walk tall over this hill with me or sneak back to camp. Hurrah, Gunny. Some of the marines whispered from their rear of the formation. The fighting had become the most primitive of battles. Knives and rocks and teeth and claws. Both species could feel the ancient bloodlust, carefully stewed by billions of years of being the last survivor. Corpses of two apex predators' evolution never meant to meet filled the cave on the other side of the ridge. End of chapter. Chapter 6 Third Fleet First Duty A thousand thousand ships burned in space above the Turlic homeworld. The humans would not retreat because their rage propelled them forward. The Turlic would not retreat because this was their home. The allies of the Turlic had not abandoned their comrades, so the massive ships fought and burned and crashed and killed high above the frightened populace. Explosions were seen even in daylight. Night brought its own terrors. On the human flagship, a small port dilated open, and a tiny ship, nearly invisible in the fog of war, and next to such a behemoth of a ship, slipped out. The tiny ship coasted through the firefight, unnoticed. Major, said Private Williams, we're three minutes out. Williams was in the forward part of the tiny ship, watching a status screen and making minute adjustments to the ship's course. The ship was barely large enough to contain a dozen soldiers inside. They were all strapped to the overhead rails by nylon cords lashed to their vacuum-capable armor. They stood back to front and could feel their people around them breathe. The center aisle was clear straight to the front airlock. Understood, Private. The Major replied. He turned to another nearly faceless soldier across the aisle and said, Commander, but to make this clear one last time, this is a Marine mission. Commander Pella said, Absolutely, Major. I'm a tourist here, right up until we reach the objective. The Navy gets to work. The crowded little pod drifted through the blackness. The soldiers inside could hear bits of debris knocking against the hull. Williams would check on the automated systems, keeping them on course after every impact. Sure hope they don't decide to vape us in this tin can, 
Jemina said. They're not going to see us, Lance Corporal, the commander replied. Big things are easier to see than small things, so we made this pod as small as possible. Bright things are easier to see than dark things in space, so this pod is black. Shiny things are easier to see than flat things, so this pod is armored with sensor-absorbing material. And so on. I knew a couple of the engineers and the design team, and they did everything they could to make us hard to spot. But if they shoot us, we're dead, right, Commander? Jaminas asked. Part of making us hard to spot was ditching as much as possible. We've got twenty minutes of air, no armor or weapons, and only minimal propulsion. We're like an ancient mammal ancestors in time of dinosaurs. We survive by being unseen. The light inside the plot blinked three times. All right, Marines, thirty seconds out, the Major said. Check your straps and set to deploy. Outside, the pod drifted towards a giant ship from one of the species or another in the Invalid Union. The approach was slow and unpowered, making the automated defense think that the pod was stuffed with humans was harmless piece of battle trash. The pod impacted the side of the ship with little to slow it down. The humans inside were tossed forward and their safety lines went taut. Magnetic and kinetic clamps automatically deployed on contact, holding the pod fast against the bigger ship. Inside the pod, the forward hatch showed light escaping around it as the robotic arms began cutting into the hull of the Union ship. In seconds, the larger ship had been breached and the marines poured into a new door. Commander Pella was the last one out. She heard a distinctive twang of modified turlic weapons and marines carried. When she stepped into the passageway moments later, she saw four dead aliens and a dozen tightly packed marines waiting for her. The interior of the Union ship was not like she expected. When she had thought to see straight hallways and metallic and ceramic, she saw rounded tunnels and walls of mud. The air was hazy with moats dancing in the light of their headlamps. Gravity felt like more of suggestion than a law of physics in the ship. Where to? the Major asked Williams. Hard to say, sir. All that trash that hit this pushed us off course a bit. Looks like we're two decks down and seven or eight sections back from where we need to be. Good enough. Marines form up. We're going up two and forward seven. Keep the commander safe and double-time it, the Major said. The Marines formed up with one on each side of the tunnel with weapons held in front of them and trying to see around corners. They could only move forward two sections before they were pinned down by enemy fire. The bugs erupted from the side passages, from alcoves, from tunnels connecting above and below. The multi-dimensional approach staggered the marines who were used to thinking are much more two-dimensionally. The band of humans was forced to back step by step. One of the marines, Commander Pella couldn't tell which, found a room that led the team into it, stealing a hatch behind them. Goddamn bugs, Jemina said. He had been hit in the upper chest, his suit seeding off the worst of the damage. His left arm hung limp and useless at his side. Rexler stepped over to him and started first aid. Major, this isn't going well, the commander said. It's just going to take us a little longer, ma'am, the major replied. We don't have much time. We can't fight our way through a thousand bugs to get you where you need to be. But if I can, sir, William shouted, the bugs found the pod, William said as he types the commands into his arm console, glowing bands of data floating across his faceplate. They've sealed that section and are attempting to disengage the clamps. The bugs are stealing our fecking ride, Jemina's half shouted through the narcotics. A dull thump sounded against the thick hatch of the door room. 
The major looked at his men and back at the commander. How much time will you need in the control room? Major asked. Not much. Five minutes or so. I just have to find the right port to interface, the commander said. Five minutes is a hell of a long time and the entire army shooting at you, the major said. We'll give you what you can, but uh, you'll have to find an escape pod to get back. What? What are you talking about? The hallway we came in has no cover. If we attempt to retake the breaching pod, they'll mow us down. We have to abandon it. Next, there are too many bugs out there to fight our way through, so my team and I will stay here and create a distraction. I'll send Williams with you to cover your back. Once you finish, he can help you pilot the ship back to our fleet. Major, if my mission's a success, you won't be coming back, the commander said. Commander, we're already not coming back. There's no way off the ship for all of us. Best we can do is complete the mission and give you the time you need. We all knew the risks when we signed up. Ten minutes later, the commander and Private Williams were crawling through a muddied access hatch into the secondary control room. Commander Pella had swallowed her pride and her frustration when they had snuck out of the room through a ventilation duct. Aboard Third Fleet flagship, Admiral Chuang asked, Any word from Echo 9? No, sir, said the lieutenant, sitting at the communications relay. We lost contact a few minutes ago. Very well, the admiral said. The damage display in the war room showed multiple severe and critical issues. The bugs of ships, clearly, the heart of the Union fleet, was delivering an unprecedented pouting to the humans. Then, the guns fell silent. The giant alien vessel began rotating and listing. Tiny explosions from inside pockmarked the outer hull of the enormous vessel as it turned to face the planet. The massive engines at the rear of the ship blazed brighter than a thousand suns for the briefest of moments, then grew dark. The terrible thrust delivered by the engines, however, was enough to push the ship's nose into the upper reaches of the atmosphere. The Trulia Comwold started pulling at the Union flagship, atmosphere dragging it slower, gravity clawing at every particle. In three minutes, the flagship, more or less in one piece, crashed into the shallow bay just west of the largest continent. The explosion overwhelmed every sensor in the fleet and blinded the eyes of those unlucky enough to have witnessed it firsthand. A roiding shockwave raced outwards from the impact point at the speed of sound. Fires raged across the land, water vapor erupted into space and blanketed the planet. Radioactive material from Union flagship's reactor was flung far and wide across the planet, the very air of the Trillia cold world was rent from the blackness of space to the bedrock of continents. Life on the Trillia cold world was coming to a rapid, crushing, and fiery end. The Admiral sat in his command chair and watched the extinction of an entire world. Two fleets, warring above the planet, had fallen silent, shocked by the brutality of final weapon. Admiral, we're picking up a Terran IFF signal from what looks like a bug escape pod. The communications lieutenant said. The admiral nodded but did not take his eyes off the screen, showing the planet dying below him. Scan it. Have Captain Banter bring it aboard if it seems safe. The admiral watched as the world burned in space. There was nothing anyone could do now to help or hinder, but the admiral felt this moment deserved his full attention. He had accomplished his mission of vengeance. End of chapter. Chapter 7 The Briefing The heavy sheet metal door woomphed shut behind me. Have a seat, Captain, Mark said, the inside of the room barely five meters by three. 
Most of the floor space was taken up by a conference table and chairs. In the corner was a massive, brutal metal safe that easily weighed half a ton. A single, unpowered terminal sat in the corner opposite the safe. Mr. Renter, I have a long trip ahead of me and a defense strategy to plan. Is this briefing really necessary right now? Captain Moore asked. Mark was bent over the lock in front of the safe, working on opening it. Afraid so, Captain. Command said that you needed this before you left. The safe popped open and Mark began pulling items from it. I'm going to be stuck on a ship for weeks traveling to this invalid union to defend Admiral Twang at trial. Surely I could get the briefing en route. Mark was plugging in items from the safe into the computer. Sorry, Captain. This information only exists in this room. Well, mostly. Either way, the ship doesn't have it and it isn't cleared for it. Mark finished reassembling the computer and powered it up. Mark turned back to the table and sat across from the captain. Okay, that'll be ready in just a minute, Mark said. He picked up a plain folder as he retrieved it from the safe and pulled out several forms. If I could get you to sign these documents, he said, handing them over to the captain. No standard warnings about not discussing what you're about to learn and acknowledge that you've been informed. Oh, and one thing of note... The penalty for unauthorized disclosure goes from a minimum of 20 years in prison up to an including penalty of death. Sorry? Yeah, this one's pretty serious. It is a death penalty at the top end, but that would only be for purposely broadcasting it. The death penalty is outlawed by the fleet's Articles of Confederation. Actually, that's only mostly true. Yes, Article 5 outlaws capital punishment, but if you look at Article 7 and Article 11, there's a loophole that allows for it even in certain circumstances. At least, that's what I've been told. You're the lawyer, though. Captain Moore skimmed through the documents and signed where required. He was certain that he could argue against the death penalty if it came to it. Mark had turned back to the computer and finished setting it up, while the captain read through and signed. Once all the legalities were out of the way, Mark tucked the papers back into the folder and removed them from the table. Okay, Captain, what you're about to see is a taped interrogation of the philosopher Kost Turlek. But philosophers never surrendered. They always suicided out before capture. That's why we had to crack into so many of their systems to learn anything about them. The only ones that we ever captured were the worker cast. Almost true. We captured one... He was too badly hurt to complete his suicide. We had him for about three weeks before he succumbed to his injuries. We verified most of his information when we got into their systems, and it seemed accurate. I also cannot stress enough how important it is that it remain classified. You are 352nd person ever briefed on this. Most of the rest of those are flag officers, director-level agency heads, and parliamentarians. There are a few, like me, who are responsible for the grant work also briefed. But it is a short list, and we are placing a great deal of trust in you. Mark turned back to the computer and pressed play on the old video. On the screen, a bloodied and broken Turlick sat slumped against the cold concrete wall. Captain Moore could hear the aliens rasping breathing through the tiny speakers attached to the computer. A voice off screen, the interrogator presumably, asked the Turlick's name. The Turlick answered with a gargling sound. The video cut out and resumed with the Turlick sitting in a chair bandaged and breathing slightly easier. Let's try this again. What's your name? The interrogator asked. Technaval, the Turnock answered, with the translation appearing at the bottom of the screen. Okay, Tech, I'd like for us to have a talk. I'd like to learn more about your culture. 
The alien's claws tried to slide out of their sheets, but these hands shook from the pain. Now, culture, what would a worm like you know of culture? Nothing. Please teach me, the interrogator said. Ah, a waste. Trying to teach you would be like trying to teach a horse to dance. Attack. Your people are beaten, the interrogator said in a low voice. Difficult to hear. Your people's time on this world is at an end. Your own time in this world is coming to a close as well. Turlock's eyes blazed as his claws tried once more to unsheath. The video clipped and cut out once more, but picked up again almost immediately. We are a proud people, Tack was saying when the video returned. An empire of worlds throughout the galaxy. We take what we need from the weaker species. The inferior species. Like humans. Yes, like humans. Backwards and primitive. Unworthy to stand in the Turlock Empire's glory. Everyone worthy. I come here. Why not pass us by? Tech said quietly. He stared at the floor to his right. Our empire is not without uh, debate. debate. I'm sorry. I don't know that word. Debate, debate means fighting with words. It means dishonoring your opponents to gain the advantage. It means arguing beyond reason. Sort of like debate. Yeah, primitive language cannot capture the fullness of the word, but yes, whatever. Our empire found your people approximately 180 years ago. One of our cargo vessels had been damaged and became lost. We saw your people when they were little more than animals. We sent a survey mission later and found that you had already learned to split the atom and walk on your moon. You were advancing much too quickly. We continued the debate, debate in the great arena. You would be amongst the stars far faster than you should. You would challenge the Turlock Empire. But uh, if your species could be brought to heal, could be made to serve the Turlock, then perhaps you would become valuable. Perhaps we could bend your pitiful civilization into a useful cog. What do you mean that we would be amongst the Sars faster than we should? It is nothing, merely one argument from dozens for bringing you into our empire. It seems a little more than that. Sounds like you were afraid of blasphemy. The Turliac fear nothing. The Turliac's claws were fully extended. His venom sacs were pulsing, his arms straining at his restraints. Blood and pus dropped from his claws and pulled on the table. The alien shouting, overwhelming the microphone. The screen cut to black. When the picture resumed, the Turlock was laying on a gurney with several tubes running into him. Human, how have I come to loathe that word? The Turlock said, slowly, with as much effort. You have taken the lives of my brothers, and you've taken mine. You asked to see me. The same interrogator's voice from earlier spoke from off-screen. The Turlock wheezed once and then said, Yes, you were right. The Turlock feared you. One faction <gasps> argued for your complete destruction. <gasps> you were too dangerous. They could not, <gasps> could not say, but that way is all understood. You would surpass us all before we could react. <gasps> Our empire would topple. We would no longer be the conquerors, but <gasps> the conquered. Why would you think that? The history of the galaxy is written in blood. Your own, <gasps> your own history was the calculus was unarguable. But you didn't destroy us. No. <coughs>
The turlock devolved into a coughing fit. His blood was flecked with blood and sputum. Eventually, he calmed down and regained his breath. We did not destroy you, the turlock said. Our greed was greater than our fear. We thought to harness you like a beast of burden. <gasps> we could use you as the engine of the greatest expansion the Empire had ever seen. We would breed you as shock troops, as scientists, as workers. <gasps> Our car system is far more rigid than yours. We don't have a car system. You do not. Well, I have lived amongst the rabble of this world for twenty, 20 years. I've seen how your people behave. You may lie to yourselves, but do not lie to me. I am near the end of my days and do not have time for such. I didn't come here to talk about humans. But you did. You came here to hear why Turlock came to this world, why we invaded. Humans would become slaves to the Turlock because you are chaos embodied, wild and unpredictable, terrifying and awesome. We thought to ride the dragon, but the dragon has returned as we feared. When my homeworld hears of this, those who demanded your destruction will become triumphant. They will launch a world killer against you. They'll wipe out all life in the system. They will order the destruction of all humans throughout the Empire. You'll be hunted and slaughtered. Humans will exist only in the memories of those who are here. The Turlek laughed to himself into a coughing foot. More blood sprayed across the white pillow beneath him. Nobody came to help him. The interrogator stayed silent off-screen. The video stopped. Mark turned to Captain Moore. Three days after that, we finalized the Articles of Confederation which created the three fleets. Captain Moore sat quietly for a moment. They were going to use us to enslave other species. Yes, and to develop new technologies... We found a few messages in one of the captured ships that led us to believe that they had begun bioengineering people to create better soldiers. We haven't found anything beyond that, however. Mice is classified. Everyone knows the Turlick are jerks. First, the powers that be decided not to tell anyone that we had a sword hanging above our heads. The Turlick were absolutely send a world killer against us. We've been seeding hidden colonies to preserve humanity. We have heavy patrols to watch for it but we have no idea how big this thing is or if we'll be able to stop it. Second, there are still Turlock sympathizers. We believe they have some ability to contact Turlock Homeworld. We don't want the enemy knowing how much we know. I've shown you the shorter version since you have a ship to catch. There are another 12 hours of pertinent video. We learn a little more about the society and culture. Nothing too groundbreaking. Most of that info has made it out in one way or another over time, so people just know it. Very well, the captain said as he looked at his watch. As you get going, he said. One last thing, captain, Mark said. A personal request. Really? I had the opportunity to work with Admiral Chuang several years ago. He's one of the smartest men I ever met. They'll tell me he's some kind of tactical miracle worker. He led the attack during the Battle of San Francisco, you know. Yes, I've heard, captain said. I don't know what's going on out there with the third fleet. Just what I hear in the news. But I can guarantee you one thing. Despite what the news says, Admiral Chang didn't surrender. He just started executing the next part of his plan. End of chapter. Wex stepped out of the shuttle and stretched in the hangar bay. Bao, Leela, and Milo peeked out of the hatch in the larger bay. A couple dozen people milled about in the bay, getting shuttles ready for launch and securing shuttles from landing. 
Good to be home, Wex said. Wex, uh, where the hell have you been? Maddie shouted as she ran up to Wex. Two days, you said two days. Lieutenant Commander Darwis is in a rampage. He's just waiting to toss you out in your rear, and I've been covering. Maddie's tirade was just getting going when she noticed three new faces in the shuttle. She glanced up at Wex. Three of them, said. One pre-invasion and two space-born, caged up in a little crappy little back room. Maddie nodded. Don't think this excuses anything, she said. She hurried off to help the three new arrivals become acclimated to life aboard a starship. You better go see Darwis. If he finds out that he wasn't your first stop, he'll blow a gasket, she shouted over her shoulder. Half an hour later, Wex was in Darwis's office with Lieutenant Commander was tearing strips off of him. You took fleet property on an unapproved mission. You endangered operations of Delic and Rakoff, not to mention disobeying an order. I was doing my job, Commander, Wex said. He'd taken a seat in front of Darwis's desk because he knew Darwis would prefer him to stand. Your job is to follow orders. As you like to point out, I'm not in the military. I'm a civilian agent. We both work for command, but I don't work for you. You're out of line, Agent Waxler. Your services are at the discretion of First Fleet. When you steal government property, you'll find out how little your skills can save you. I didn't steal anything, Darwis, and you know it. Everything I borrowed is right back in your hangar, plus three new rescues. Three! You did all of this for three rescues! Oh, yes. We'd never turn this fleet around just for three people. I, uh, borrowed a ship and brought them home, Wex said. Threw in a field test on that alien fat suit for free while I was at it. This mission was not authorized. You were not authorized. We brought back 1,800 rescues while you were gone. Now you're going to lose your career over three people. I'd have lost it over one person. Task Force Fidelity, remember? Not Task Force... Oh, it wasn't worth the gas to free those slaves. Our mission is to bring our people home. You must have been a saint in a previous life or something. That's the only way I can explain your luck. Just before you got here, the old man sent down word that all agents are to investigate a new rumor we picked up. He mentioned you by name, Darwis said. His mouth curled up like it tasted something fell. What rumor? Max asked, not while disappointed, curtailing the argument. Jericho. There is a rumor of a colony named Jericho. The old man is interested because that name wasn't translated. That's its actual name. So either there's a hell of a coincidence between old Earth name or it was founded by people from Earth. That would be a hell of a coincidence. We, you, are supposed to investigate and report back. Understood? No cowboy heroics in this one. Find out what you can and get your ass back here. Three days later, Wex was back in the hangar bay, preparing his shuttle to leave. Mandy was checking the port lateral thruster array, and Wex was restocking food and water when he heard someone clear the throat behind him. Wex turned around to see Leela standing there with Bao, stood several meters behind her. Th thank you, Leela managed to get out. She buried her face in her hands as soon as she finished. She wanted to come tell you in person, Bao said. She's been practicing. Wex looked down to clear his eyes. When he looked up, eyes still watery, he said, It was my pleasure, Leela, Bao asked. Heading out so soon. That's the job, Wex said. We come out here to bring our people home. 
Some of us just have got to go ahead of the fleet and find them first. I heard you were in some trouble because of us, Bao said. No, Wex said. I was in trouble because of me. Well, that and a jerk who thinks he's king of his little molehill. But mostly me. Even so, we appreciate what you did and the risks you took. I, uh... I'm not good at this, Wex said, and then picked up another crate to load into his ship. I've got a mission and a, uh... We should be going too. Leela has classes shortly. She really has taken to Earth history. You should see her light up when they talk about ancient castles, Bao said as he gently pulled Leela back. Bye, Jedi, Leela said, standing both Wax and Bao. Then she took off out of the hangar. Take care of her, Wax said. I will, Bao said. Then he too left, chasing Leela at a gentle pace. You're the biggest jerk, Mandy said to him from around the rear of the shuttle, but you have a good heart. Yeah, that's me, nothing but heart and arsehole. Did you get the thruster repaired? Hours later, far from any human ships or worlds, Wax felt himself fall back to that memory with Leela in the hangar. He found that the memory could keep him warm, even in the cold depths between the stars. End of chapter. Chapter 9. A Decisive Audition. Because it's damned odd, that's why, Major Winthrop shouted. It is not odd, Major, Mr. Bajit said. Me overthrew the Turlock and created our three fleets. Why wouldn't one of our other slave races want to join the flight? Look, Mr. Bajit, I appreciate what you're trying to do. You have a wonderful organization, but with all the helping the poor little aliens, and as much as I appreciate all you do... We simply don't have any way for aliens to join the second fleet. Major, have you met the Guadalurina? Sounds Welsh. Not exactly, sir. They are approximately three and a half meters tall on average. The Turnic used them as beasts of burden. I've seen some of the larger ones pull meter-wide tree trunks out by the roots with their bare hands. These Welsh aliens of yours, the Guadalurina. Uh, as you say, these aliens. How intelligent are they? Mr. Bajit sat down and faced Major across the desk. Quite intelligent, Major. They produce beautiful music during the rest periods. They have a deeply profound religion based on nature deities. Their stories and legends show a reverence for customs similar to ours. Well, that's all very well for them, but can I train them to fight? Could they drive a tank or fly a plane? Do they have any heavy manufacturing or pharmaceuticals? Mr. Bajit pursed his lips momentarily. Not, um, as such... They are more of a feudal society, roughly equivalent to our Middle Ages. Castles and knights, then. Of course, of the sort, Major. But they are quite dedicated and grateful. They want to help, to hold their destiny in their own hands. One cannot fault them for that, surely. Major Winthrop sighed and ran his hands through his hair. No, suppose we all should understand that. Very well, Mr. Bajit. Bring a few of these Welsh aliens around and I'll see what woofs we can find for them. Mr. Bajit's face erupted into a smile. I have three wonderful candidates right outside, he said. Major Winthrop stared at Mr. Bajit for a while. I see, he said. The two men walked out of the front door of the heavy afternoon sun. The giant red star overhead beat down on them as wisps of dust swirled around them. They squinted against the light and dust. Manal Court, Trinoline, and Dolanale, Mr. Bajit shouted as they rounded the corner. Standing in the parade ground were three of the biggest aliens Major Winthrop had ever seen. 
Each one was over twice the major's height. Sergeant Wazjinski, a bear of a man from Milwaukee, barely came up to the alien's midsection. Their muscles rippled under their skin as they moved, each cord thicker than a man's wrist. Their legs were more like elephant legs than a man's, thick and frighteningly powerful. While their height was the first thing he noticed, Major Winthrop had also taken their wits in brawn. As Mr. Bidget called their names, the three aliens stood at a rough proclamation of attention. Very good, very good, this is Major Winthrop, Mr. Bidget said. He was speaking louder than strictly necessary to be heard over the wind. He has come to observe you to see where you should be able to sign. Not strictly true, Mr. Bidget. Let's not get the hopes up, shall we? Yes, of course, Major. Menelko, please show Major how strong you are. The first behemoth alien nodded brusquely and then looked around. He spotted a set of picnic tables a few meters away. A handful of long, powerful strides had him at the tables. He picked up one wrought iron table in each hand and banged them together. After a single, ringing impact, the tables were no longer recognizable. The giant alien crushed and tangled mess between his massive tree-like arms into a crude ball. Manelko looked over his shoulder and saw a tank parked near the armory. He took the metal ball that used to be the brace of picnic tables, wound up, and delivered a streaking hot pitch into the broad side of the tank. When the ball hit, the tank was nearly flipped over from the impact, landing heavily on its left side dread. The heavy armor was bent and had molded itself around the ball. Manelko turned back and smiled at the Major and Mr. Bajit. The Major took an involuntary step backwards when he saw a mouthful of sharp teeth longer than his forearm. Quite the show, Mr. Bridget, the Major said, his brow furrowed. Top-notch brute strength. Can they follow more complicated orders? Of course, sir. Clywine, run over to that tank, retrieve the ball, and set the tank back at its treads. The second alien leapt into action. In moments, he had made it to the tank and plucked the ball from the side. With one powerful stroke, he righted the tank, which bounced when it hit the ground. The gigantic alien then ran back to Mr. Bajit and dropped the ball at his feet with a heavy thud that kicked up a cloud of dust. Satisfied, Major? Mr. Bajit asked. His bright face was open and waiting. Very nearly, Mr. Bajit, very nearly. May I command the third? Yes, that should, uh... That should not be an issue. Why the hesitation, Mr. Bajit? I've been the only one working with them, so we've never tried someone else asking them to do something. If they join the fleet, they'll have to adapt to many superior officers and enlisted personnel giving them orders. Yes, Mr. Bajit said, smiling. Of course they will, uh, it'll be fine. The Major turned to the third alien. You there! I say you there! His name is Dollar Nail, sir, Mr. Bajit said. Very good, Mr. Dollar, Nigel. Front and center, if you please. The third alien hesitated, then lumbered over to stand in front of Major and Mr. Bridget. Now, Mr. Dollar Nigel, can you tell me why you want to join my fleet? The alien hesitated and looked at Mr. Bridget. It's okay, Dollar Nail, to answer the McCranger's question. When the alien spoke, his voice was high and clear. It reminded Major of a young child. I wish to help. I see you fully taught them the king's English, Mr. Bridget, the Major said. We cannot always rely on translators, sir. This seemed a safer option for those wanting to join your fleet, Mr. Bridget said. Major Winthrop nodded. Mr. Dollar Nigel, how exactly would you want to help? The giant alien cocked his head and stared down at Major Winthrop. By killing the Toliak, it said in a giant child's voice. 
Yes, uh, yes, uh, that would be quite uh, helpful, Mr. Dollar Nigel. Well, Major, what do you think? Mr. Bridget asked. Major Winthrop stared up in the smooth face of the three giants standing in the open yard. He looked at the two picnic tables twisted into a ball by their bare hands. He looked at the dented and deformed tank with one tread hanging dangerously loose. I suppose I'll have to see the quartermaster for septuple extra-large uniforms, Major Winthrop said. Mr. Bidget cheered and the aliens followed. And one medium uniform, the Major said, looking at Mr. Bidget. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Bidget said. Yes, well, uh, these Walshmen seem to respect you, and you have a great deal of experience with them. You are hereby drafted as squad leader, Corporal Bidget. The three gargantuan aliens looked at Corporal Bridget and smiled with their mouths full of overlarge teeth. Corporal Bridget managed a weak and watery grin that managed to combine both terror and joy. End of chapter. Chapter 10. Perambulations of the Heart Wex sat in a dim room that he had rented. Outside, signs and garish advertisements battled for attention. An animal cried out and then was cut short. The threadbare covers on the window did nothing to shut out the lights and sounds of the bizarre blow his room. Releasing the air valve in his respirator mask, Wex took a deep breath of the still night air in his room. He sat, staring at the floor, just being, breathing, not thinking, not talking, not doing. Silence surrounded him as he pushed the outside sounds away in his mind. Wex sighed once, heavily, then pulled out a small screen from his breast pocket. He attached a small silver cylinder to its side and made a number of adjustments. In moments, he was facing Mandy's face on the screen. Hey, Wex, what's up? Mandy asked. Same as always. This is the third planet I've searched and no one's heard of Jericho. Finding one planet in a galaxy is going to be tough. Yeah, Wex said. Darwin's intel had all the pointing to the sector, but I haven't found anything yet. Did he send you on a wild goose chase? Max paused. Maybe. Doesn't feel like it, though. Darbus would rather watch me suffer than just waste my time. Besides, he might be wrapped up in bureaucracy, but he knows what the mission is. I don't think he'd take a senior agent out of commission just because he was angry. Well, if you say so. How's the new room, hmm? Uh, oh, yeah. To be honest, I hadn't even noticed. All these times in the Roach Motels are blending together after a while. But I've got my gun and I set the alarm on the door, so I'm good. Why don't you just come back for a little while? You've been out there for over a month. And those slaves have been out here for over 30 years. I can manage. Mandy chewed on her bottom lip. How's the new disguise working? Not bad. A face respirator and a couple prosthetics is all it takes to not look human. The fat suit was fun, but I can breathe and move a lot easier like this. Wax, Mandy said. You know, if you need something, I know, Mandy. I know. I better hit the rack. Got another big day of disappointment ahead of me tomorrow. There's a bazaar right outside that I'm going to hit up. Good night, Wax. Good night, Mandy. Agent report over. Wax powered off the little screen and attached the crypto cylinder, secreting them back into his vest pockets. He sat in the dark and listened to the white noise hum of the street outside. Wex walked up with a limp through the bazaar with the sweat pooling in a small of his back. He'd fallen asleep in a chair and by the time he'd woke up, 
his body was too stiff to move. It had taken most of the early morning to work out the knots in his back and legs. By the time he'd made it out of the bazaar, the sun was high above and angry. Max meandered through the narrow passages between the stalls and shops on either side of the street. Even through the fake respirator, Wax could smell dozens of species and exotic fruits pressing in close around him. Once or twice, Wax was caught downwind or something too pungent for his earth-based biology, and he found himself wiping tears from his eyes. The bazaar was doing brisk business without being overwhelmed. Vendors and customers alike chatted and moved on. A light breeze appeared and disappeared with little regularity. As Wax passed a stall, something caught his eye. It was gone too quickly for him to consciously recognize it, but something pulled at him. He glanced over the cheap wares on display, but that didn't free right. Wooden supports held a weak roof over the perpetrator's head. Attached to the uprights were bits of colored cloth dancing in the breeze. Wex held the lowest bit of cloth, then the next, then the next. Just as he lifted a faded red scrap of cloth barely above his head, his heart dropped. A solid tug dislodged a makeshift flag. Wex laid it flat in his hands, forming a T-shape. To be sure, he wasn't imagining it. The three circles, one large and two small, bit rounded script at the bottom corner nearly too faded to read. Disney. Wex barked at the vendor. Hey, where did you get this? You like? The vendor asked, his voice rough and translation lagging. It's seven, no haggling. Where did you get this? Wex bit off his words, trying to hold his anger, his hope, his fear, and his joy in check. Seven. Wex dug through his pockets and found enough of the local currency to purchase the worn and ragged t-shirt. There, Wex said, paying the vendor. Now where did you get this? Trader, a box of goods was in box. I'd like to see the box, Wex said. The vendor considered for a moment, then reached down and brought the box half full of random bits of detritus. Wex reached for the box and the vendor held out of each. Two hundred. Box two hundred. There is no way the crap is worth two hundred. I'll give you ten. Wex had heard other vendors haggling and bartering all morning. Box worth nothing to most. Box not worth two hundred to you. Wex cursed himself for his eagerness. Fifty, Wex said. The vendor paused for a moment. One ninety. After a few more rounds of back and forth, they settled on a price. Wex tore through the box, finding old Nikes, a copy of the Bible, and many used and worn clothes. I need to know where all this came from, Wex said. The vendor scratched his belly and looked away. Twenty, Wex said. Five hundred, the vendor said. Wex stared at the alien vendor. He glanced around to look for security cameras or police. He slipped his holdout gun down his sleeve and into his hand. The vendor caught a glint of metal and then took a step back. Wex held the gun close to keep everyone in the street from seeing it. Ten, Wex said, and I don't throw in a little extra. He nodded to the gun when he spoke. Ten, the vendor agreed. So then what? Mandy asked. He said he traded with some farmers, Wex said. He was back in the shuttle and Mandy could see the blue of the sky slowly give way to the black of space behind Wex's head. It took some doing, but I managed to get a vague direction out of him, and from what he tells me, their ship couldn't have made it far. I looked up all the local systems of the Turlik database, and there are two candidates. I'm going to check them out. I've copied the coordinates to you. Got them, Maddie said. You sure you don't want backup? Not yet. I can slip in real quiet and get the lay of the land. If we go stalling blind in with half the fleet, there's no telling how bad it could go. Okay, but be careful. You're an awful long way from home. 
Will do, Max said. He cut the transmission and set the systems on his ship to stealth mode. The lights dimmed as the settings took place and let him know that it was done. Hours later, Wax drifted silently over a dusky green planet. He'd launched a probe to the other candidate planet and waited for its results as he investigated the planet below him. There were no satellites in orbit, no communications channels broadcasting, and no sights of inhabitants. Wex was awoken by a hushed pinging from the main console. He called up the display and saw an outline highlighting a finding. Zooming in, Wex saw humanoids walking around and felt his heart leap into his throat. He enlarged the scan and saw the ramshackle shuttle sitting some distance off, several kilometers away. Max saw an angry burn scar across the land. It stretched for a dozen kilometers or more and was gouged deep into the bedrock. Max completed five more orbits, each time scanning more details, looking for any signs of hostiles. The pitiful shuttle was the only sign of high technology that Wex found. He decided to chance it and take a closer look. He made planet fall a thousand kilometers to the west during his next orbit and dropped below to avoid detection. The wind screamed past his shuttle as he bottomed out only a hundred meters from the land. Wex shed speed as rapidly as it could, slowing to a sedate pace as he approached the settlement. Night was coming, and it would be full dark within an hour. He made a low pass over the burned scar across the land, and it seemed even more massive up close. Wex passed behind a ridge a bare three kilometers from the settlement and set the shuttle down as quickly and as quietly as he could. Stepping out of the shuttle into the twilight air, Wex took his first breath of the alien planet. No matter how many new worlds he visited, this one moment, this first breath, always seemed sacred to him. Securing his pack and checking his gear, Wex headed off towards the settlement. He crept along the scrubs and washabouts, keeping his head low and setting each foot softly head to toe. What seemed like an eternity later, Wex was close enough to make out the campfires and torches of the settlement. It was fully dark now, with only a starlight to show the way. Wex was especially wary of unknown animals out for a late night snack. He was so intent on moving quietly and not being seen that he was almost on top of a woman of the settlement before he saw her. Wex stuck quickly behind a bush and calmed his breathing. The woman was strolling along the border between the settlement and the wild lands beyond. She stayed within the firelight but looked out into the darkness. Her red hair became a halo with a distant firelight behind it. She wore a simple dress that showed several patches and mends. As the woman came closer to the edge of the settlement, Wex tensed. He looked around to be sure that they were alone. When she took the last fateful step towards the dark, Wex leapt. He was upon her before she could register it. He grabbed her with one hand over her mouth and the other around her waist. He spun back into the darkness as she began beating him with a free hand. A dozen steps into the bush, Wex sat down with the woman. Don't scream, he whispered into her ear. I'm human, and I'm here to rescue you. The woman paused the furious hail of punches and listened. She nodded once, as well as possible, with a hand over her mouth. Wex slowly released her, making sure to not drop her to the rocky dust. What the hell are you doing? The woman asked. Keep your voice down, Wex whispered. I told you, I'm here to rescue you. The woman stared at Wex, then burst out laughing. Mister, you're an idiot. The woman got up and started walking back to the settlement. Wex scrambled to catch her. He grabbed her by the wrist and spun her to face him. I'm with a group known as First Fleet, our mission. Just then, a turlyak lumbered out of the settlement. 
Wex whipped his head and drew his gun in the blink of an eye. A wriggling blue bolt of plasma tore across the distance and hit the Cherliac in the center of his chest. The woman decked Wax, laying him out flat on his back. She rushed over to the fallen Turliac. Oh no, God no, she said, as she cradled Turliac's head in her lap. Come to check on you, Turliac said, his voice weak and gurgling. I'm fine, the woman said as tears fell to the dirt making tiny mud puddles. I told you not to worry so much, you're a stubborn old fool. She ran her fingers over the rough ridges of the alien's head. I told you there wasn't any danger in this world that I couldn't face. And I told you, the Turniac said before coughing up blood, smattering across him and the woman, I told you that I, you wouldn't have to face it alone. The Turniac's voice trailed off. Wex had made it back to his feet and stumbled over to them. He held the gun in front of him, but unsteadily, What the hell? You killed my husband, you son of a bitch! The woman launched herself from the ground with an uppercut that caught Wex right under his chin. The last thing he remembered was the stars as they wheeled past his feet. End of chapter. Chapter 11 To the Manor Born Admiral Cheng, I'm Captain Wu. I'll be representing you. Captain Wu said as he held out his hand, and Admiral Hall stood and shook his hand. They sat across from each other with a small metal table between them. The tiny room set aside for the meeting was barely large enough for the two men. The wall sconces chaos had just enough light just to see the furniture, but little else. You have a defense strategy, Captain, the Admiral asked. We're honing in on one, sir. I've brought almost 200 jag lawyers and a thousand paralegals with me. We've been studying the Inblit Union's jurisprudence for the entire trip from Earth. One thing that we're not yet clear on is whether the Union respects lawyer-client confidentiality as we do. I've conditioned the Justicar for a secure location for us to talk, but until that is resolved, we'll have to be a bit more, uh, circumspect. The Admiral nodded. Prudent, Captain. The report we received, the Captain said, reading from Pad, said that you invaded Turliac home system with the Third Fleet, infiltrated a Union warship, and crashed the said warship into Turliac homeworld, rendering it uninhabitable to all known life. A second Union fleet showed up and forced you to surrender, you negotiated the release of your people back to Earth, but the price was that the ships of the Third Fleet were sent into local sun, and you surrendered peacefully. They brought you here to their capital, a space station called the Manor. That's best as we can tell, where you've been awaiting your trial. Mostly true as to... The captain held up his hand. Please, sir, we may not be at liberty to speak confidentially at the moment. I am updating you as to what I've been told by the Union... They already know this, so they'll gain nothing if they are listening. The captain glanced back down at the pad and scrolled further along. I also see three people were brought with you. Dr. Almeida, Warrant Officer Margaro, and Chief Petty Officer Fontaine. According to Union records, you requested they be allowed to accompany you as a medical support team to treat your congenial condition. They were allowed to come along and are not in custody as the Union considers them humanitarian and necessity. The Admiral nodded. Yes, I hadn't originally wanted them to come as it would endanger them, but they prevailed on me and the Union was good enough to allow them along. I see the doctor once or twice per day. Her assistants usually accompany her. They tell me that I have not been mistreated. Good, the captain said. I'll check in on them when we're done here. Now, about your trial. 
A political entity as large and as old as the Invalid Union has quite a complicated process. However, since we are not a member species and we are accused of not only attacking but destroying a member species, they are also in uncharted waters. That levels the playing field somewhat. We should be able to work out a hybrid legal system that isn't slanted in either side's favor. The trial will not be held by our courts, but instead in their parliament. It's not true parliament, but that's the closest human term that we could find. A tribunal of three judges will preside over the trial. The judges will not be of the same species as those who fought in the accused battle, and all three will be from different species. That's the best we could do for the impartial judiciary. Finally, the prosecution will be conducted by the... Well, I can't pronounce it. It's the species that looks like giant grasshoppers crossed with a beetle. I am familiar with that species, the Admiral said. Yes? They were present in heavy numbers at the Battle of Turliac. They are quite keen on your guilty verdict. I would assume as much. What do you feel our chances of winning are, Captain? Impossible to say, sir. This is unprecedented in human history. We may be seen as sympathetic for a number of reasons, or they may fear us as monsters. So poor to none, then. I wouldn't go that far, Admiral. Captain, I'm an old man. I have outlived my family and fought for and won my freedom. I don't have the time for self-indulgence or easy platitudes. I need to face my fate with clear eyes. Yes, sir. I honestly would not care to guess on our odds. I've seen people I was certain were guilty be exonerated, and I've seen convictions based on papers and evidence. Add in the sheer uniqueness of the situation on both their side and ours. Well, I simply could not say, sir. Fair enough, Captain. Do you have a timeline? Yes, sir. The trial begins in four days by our calendar. Not much time, the Admiral said. No, sir. But we've been preparing for weeks during the trip. I promise you that we have our very best minds on this. I am sure you do, Captain. How are your accommodations? Well, I'm a prisoner. That being said, not too bad. We brought some human food when I surrendered, so we've been able to eat well enough. The doctor oversees the preparations and the guards check for contraband. To be honest, this is probably the first restful period I've had in 30 years. Good to keep your spirits up, sir. I'll see if my ship has any food that they can send over for a bit of variety. Thank you, Captain. That would be nice. If your ship can spare the resources, I could use a new clean uniform for the trial. I'm afraid I didn't grab any Class A's when I was taken into custody. I'll see what I can do, sir. Anything else? A book or two would help pass the time. I've always been partial to Twain and Hemingway, if you have them. I believe we can figure something out, Admiral. I know this looks a bad situation, but we'll do everything we can. Everyone back home is pulling for you, sir. The Admiral half smiled and had a distant look in his eyes. Thank you, Captain. Captain Moore found Dr. Almeida by an inverted waterfall deep inside the station. She was easy to spot as the only human amongst the dozens of aliens. Dr. Almeida? Captain Moore asked. She turned around and her face broke into a wide smile. Yes! Oh, how lovely to see another human face. I am Captain Scott Moore. May I? He asked, pointing at the seat down at the doctor. Of course. What brings you to the so-called manor? I'm a jack attorney. I'll be representing Admiral Chuang at the trial. So they were able to find someone, Dr. Almeida said. Pardon? Bell. When we heard there was to be a trial, we thought no one would be foolish enough to take the case. A hostile jury in a legal system we know nothing about. 
Surely that would be too much for any human lawyer. Captain Wuhr smiled. Well, I was ordered. The doctor laughed. Of course you were. Command wouldn't want their prized pony left swinging in the breeze. Though, in all honesty, they did give me a chance to say no. Why didn't you? As corny as it sounds, I believe in justice. The Admiral needed someone standing by him. I can say no in good conscience. That's very noble, Captain. Thank you, Doctor. I came here to ask you about the Admiral. Is he okay? He told me that he was allowed to bring you and two others because he needed treatment and that you refused to leave his side. The Doctor turned away and watched the thin crowds pass by. The waterfall goggled and the gentle hum of conversations filled the hole where the silence would be. Eighty-eight, the doctor said. Eighty-eight what? Species, Captain. I've personally seen eighty-eight new sapient species since we arrived here. They tell me that there are hundreds of species in Invalid Union, but so far I've only seen eighty-eight. Those two squat bluish fellows over there by the arcade turnstile, she said, nodding in the general direction. They're number eighty-eight for me. You must be good luck, Captain. She turned back to face him. I was stuck at 87 for nearly two weeks. Does this have something to do with the Admiral's health? As a lawyer, I'm sure you understand about confidentiality. I do. But I also understand about making the strongest case that I can, and to do that, I need a complete picture. I cannot divulge any details. You should ask the Admiral if you want to know more. I understand you can't discuss specifics, but what about generalities? When you make it through the trial... Oh my, yes, sir. He's clearly not on death's door. What about his testimony? If he gets called to the stand, will he be able to testify? The captain asked. We will have to address the crack question when the time comes. I will say that he is a stubborn old man, and if he wants to take the stand, nothing you or I can do to stop him. That's not a medical diagnosis, you understand. At least, being bullheaded was never listed in any of my textbooks. Whatever his condition, do you believe it affects his mind? Can he contribute to his own defense? And, to be clear, I am not asking about his state of mind during the battle, just here and now. I have observed no diminished mental capacity, Captain. How much he'll contribute, I can't say, but I know of no medical reason he can't. The Captain smiled politely. Thank you, Doctor. Captain Moore looked around at the aliens, wandering through, bustling past, and strolling along. He watched the various shapes and sizes among the crowd, he watched the rainbow of colors on all the faces. He watched sheer variety of life before him. Do you think humanity will ever be invited to a group like this? Given what the Admiral did, I doubt it. The Admiral didn't do anything. He's being accused of doing something, Captain Moore said, half out of habit. I was there, Captain. I saw. The Captain held up a hand and shook his head. Doctor... I don't know this legal system very well. I'm not sure what exactly what they would consider admissible evidence. For example, if some security officer was eavesdropping on us, this whole conversation might be entered into evidence. If you'd like to discuss this, and I'd very much look forward to that, then we can step aboard the human ship that brought me here. At least there, we have some measure of privacy. You are a paranoid one, aren't you? In one of my very first classes at law school, I had a professor that I thought was the very definition of paranoid. He taught us that a lawyer never asks a question in court without knowing the answer because lawyers hate surprises. We had a couple mock testimony sessions where he absolutely tore me apart. So the less fuel I can give to the prosecution's case, the better. Well, I suppose that's the difference between a lawyer and a doctor. 
We make it a habit to share information as widely as possible in order to help others. You seem to hoard information to help yourself. I am a zealous advocate for my client. I obey all the rules of my profession and adhere to the canon of ethics, but I will do everything within my framework to ensure my client prevails. I suppose I can see your point, Captain. Still, it's quite different than what I'm accustomed to. It is for most people. I appreciate your time, Doctor. We're docked at lower level, port 62D115. If you'd like to stop by for that interview... Pleasure meeting you, Captain, Dr. Almeida said. I'll stop by. She shook his hand and he took his leave. End of chapter. Chapter 12. Welcome to Jericho. His head throbbed and his tongue tasted like metal. He could feel his pulse in his skull. Inhaling caused fresh blossom of hot, angry pain in his left side. One of his legs, he couldn't tell which, had a dull ache like a steady hum of an old furnace. Rex tried opening his eyes, so very slowly. The other eye was much less cooperative. He let his head loll lazily to the side and then the other. Through the hazy vision, Wex saw that he was in a small room with a window high on the wall and a singular door directly across from him. He chanced a deep breath to steel himself for what was to come. Wex shifted his weight and threw one leg over the other, attempting to force himself out of the cot upon which he lay. The sudden change in position was too much for him, and a strangled cry escaped from between his clenched teeth. There were too many new hotspots of pain for him to localize them. All he could tell was that his life was pain now. He heard movement outside the door and the clicking of the mechanism. He glanced around for anything that would serve as a makeshift weapon, but the room was bare. Even had he been able to move, he was left with no weapons beyond his own fists. The door opened, and he saw a figure outlined in the light from beyond the door. Ah, oh, damn it, you're up, the figure in the doorway said. Wex stared at him and then felt the consciousness slipping away. When next he woke, Wex found his left leg shackled to the bed frame. His wounds looked and felt dressed. Still with us, the voice called from above his head. He could just barely crane his neck around to see part of a man standing there. He heard scribbling on a paper, and then the man stepped into view. You were pretty close to not coming back there for a while, the man said. I'm Doc McCulloch, for those that just call me Doc around here. Where am I? Wex tried to speak, but found his mouth uncooperative. You're on a colony called Jericho. It's a world founded by humans. Wex lifted a hand and gently pointed to himself. Human. I sort of figured, at least close enough for government work. What happened? Molly kicked the shite out of you for shooting her husband, George. If the marshal hadn't heard her working you over, she would have killed you. Though you may wish that you would, you don't have much in the way of analgesics around here. Malt brews up a pretty good batch of rotgut, but liquor is the last thing you need right now. No. Wex felt that he should drag out every word so Doc could understand him around the dead bulk of his tongue. No! Well, now's the rest and heal. I'll stop by every day to see how you're doing. I paid the Borshears boy to sit and keep an eye on you. He'll come and get me if you take a turn. Wex rested and healed as the Doc ordered. The Borshears boy, Johnny, would stop in throughout the day and check in on Wex. One day, when Wex was stronger... He asked Johnny a question. Johnny, 
Wex said. What is this place? There's no record of it ever being founded. You all have clearly been here for a while. What happened? My mom says that I'm not to talk to you except about your health. She worries that I'm a bad influence, I suppose. Well, I'm sure that she's looking out for you. And so it continued. Doc would show up in every day, usually around dinner to check on Wex. Johnny was strictly business and never talked about anything other than Wex's health. Wex tried to pry more information from Doc, but Doc just said, I'm here to treat you, son. That's all. I expect the mayor will answer all your questions once you're strong enough to answer his. A week later, Doc pronounced Wex healthy enough for some light activity. In this case, light activity apparently meant being questioned. A man with graying temples came in and Doc was leaving. They exchanged a few whispered words and the door as they passed each other. I understand your name is Wex, is that right? The new man said. Yes. Good, my name is Warren Blackman. I'm the mayor of Jericho. I'd like to know why you came here and shot George. I'm from a group called First Fleet. Our mission is to rescue and repatriate humans who are taken by the Trilliac. He was a Trilliac and is our enemy, Mayor. Son, George wasn't anybody's enemy. He was a farmer who kept to himself and his wife. How long have you been here? What's going on here? To your first question, we've been here for, oh, going on 18 years now. Let's see, that'd be around 27 Earth years or so. We were aboard a transport ship taken from Earth. We were one of the smaller ships, only about 25,000 of us. Something happened on the trip. We don't know if it was a problem with the ship or if we hit something. Either way, the ship was badly damaged and we crashed here. Killed about a third of everyone aboard. That's the giant scar I saw coming in. Most likely, yes. Well, humans outnumbered the Trilloc and about ten to one back then. We got lucky and not all the Trilloc were big supporters of the slave trade they had going. There was a dust-up where the abolitionists fought with the slavers. Old George, who you put a hole through, was one of the abolitionists. He put down a fair number of slavers. Taught us how to use some of the Trilloc weapons too. Sorry, Rex said. Anyway, the mayor continued. By the time it was all said and done, we had under a thousand Trilloc left and a shade under twelve thousand humans. We banded together to survive on this planet. Not all the Trilloc agreed, mind you. A few of the odd slavers walked off up to the hills. From what I understand, they still have a town up there. We catch one coming in to raid our stalls every now and then. We spank them and send them back home. None of us really have a taste for killing anymore. Sounds like you've had a rough time. Oh, we've had a few bumps along the way but most of that is in the past now. So why don't you tell me why you thought it was a good idea to aerate a hero of Jericho on the first night in town? You weren't on Earth long after the Trilloc invaded, were you, Mayor? Wex asked. No, our ship left Earth about three years after they first showed up. It got worse. We got a lot worse. They ended up there for 20 years. Terrible brutality. We lost two billion in the first year after the invasion to the war. Starvation. Disease. Over the next 18 years, we lost another 4 to 6 billion to the slave trade alone. Earth's population is now back to 20th century levels. After 20 years of that, we'd had enough. We overthrew the Turniac, and a lot of good people died to buy our freedom. We stole everything we could from the Turniac. Not just their ships and tools, but the technologies behind them. Ten years later, we had three fleets. We carved up seven moons from Jupiter and Saturn. I think there might have been even one from Neptune... The fleets were named Task Force Fidelity, Task Force Defiance, and Task Force Vengeance. I'm from the first one, Fidelity. Our mission is to bring our people home. Defiance's mission is to free the other races the Turniac had enslaved. 
and vengeance was to go after the Tony Commonwealth and colonies. You all have been busy, yeah. So when I saw Tolik walk out towards us on an unknown human colony, well, well, I just assumed that we were being held prisoner, that this was some slave outpost. Yeah, Rex said. You always act quick on the draw, shoot first and ask questions later. Not always, but often. It saved me more than a few times. Uh-huh. And what is it exactly that you do for the first fleet? I'm a scout, mostly. A spy when needed, a investigator at times. That's what brought me here. We heard a rumor of a human settlement called Jerica in this sector. The mayor stared at him for a moment. My kind of rumor. I'm not at liberty to discuss the details. I've investigated several likely planets and found a box of goods that could have only come from Earth. Like what? A Disney t-shirt and a pair of Nikes that were the most obvious things. I, uh, convinced the shopkeeper to tell me what he knew. How the hell did you guys even make it off this planet? After the crash, after other troubles, we started salvaging what we could from the wreckage. We cobbled together a few different parts and managed to get a short-range shuttle, mostly operational. We send out a team with trade items every now and then. Crops, mostly. We do a brisk business in the local version of potatoes. But the trade group isn't supposed to take anything that can be tracked back to us. Somebody broke your rules, Mayor. Speaking of which, you put us in quite a predicament, Wex. We haven't had an honest-to-godness murder in here since we settled. Most folks keep to themselves. We get a couple drunks fighting every now and again. The occasional theft, but remarkably little crime. What crimes we do get, we take care of quickly. We don't have the resources to keep people locked up and not contributing. Then you show up and kill a member of our community. Look, I'm sorry about that, but you got to see it from my side. I was, oh, I understand why you did it. But that doesn't change the fact that George is still dead. Not to mention Molly would like to finish the job that she started on you. If you let me go, I can get back to the fleet, and we can get you off this rock and back home. Mister, I am home. The only home I've known for my entire adult life. Earth. That's just a memory. A place I used to know. We've got our blood, sweat, and tears mixed in with the dirt in these fields, and the boards in these buildings. I've got two children buried up on Golgotha Hill. I'm not leaving them. You bringing this fleet of yours back here is the last thing I want. You can't be serious. Serious as a heart attack, the mayor said. You're barely living here. Surviving is more like it. What about medicine? If someone gets sick here, it's a death sentence. Come back to Earth and they can get treated. Not to mention that we could just use intel on the Turlick you've... They're my neighbors, mister. I don't plan to turn traitor on some of the very people that elected me into this position. If your attitude is anything to go by, they're safer here where anywhere near Earth or one of your fleets. Maybe we can get a pardon for them. Or maybe they stay right here, free and accepted in this community. You said that you were still having trouble with those slaver Turdyuk in the hills, right? The fleet could clear them out for you. Oh, I'm sure they would. Probably make quick work of it, too. But if the price for that is the peace of our community, we'd rather live with a few raids now and then. Hell, I bet there'd be people falling over themselves to help us get back to Earth regardless if we wanted it or not. Whole damn town might get snatched up. I'm sure they'd... Uh, Listen, uh, to, yeah, that's what I thought. You can't even tell me that they'd let us alone. You know they'd tear us town apart. You sure you speak for the whole town? They elected me as mayor, so, yes, I speak for the whole town. What if some wanted to go back to Earth? Some of the older ones who wanted to go back to the families, or the younger ones who wanted to leave this backwater world? The older ones have families right here, and the young ones always want to run off somewhere else. That's just as true on Earth as it is in Jericho, Bermea said. Then give them a choice. 
Don't just make it for them. No. Giving them that choice means risking the freedom of everyone else in this town. They don't get to make that choice that hurts the rest of the community. The mayor stood up. Rex, we're going to have to keep you here, and that means I'm going to have to figure out what to do with you. We're not set up for a lifetime imprisonment, and we don't have the stomach for getting any more. I've got a council meeting tomorrow evening, and we'll see what they think. The mayor walked out, leaving Wex alone with his thoughts. That night's sleep was one of the worst in Wex's life. He wasn't fully healed from the beating, and his leg was still shackled to the bed frame. Escaping was going to be a problem at best. No tools, no time, and injured trying to run. Sleep finally took him near dawn when his body could no longer fight it. End of chapter. Admiral Chang watched the prosecutor pace about in front of the podium. His strange, chirping, clicking language translated in near real time. The Admiral could see the lag in translation as the assembled parliament reacted in waves when the prosecutor would make a particularly awful point. The parliament chamber was a massive rotunda. An Admiral wasn't able to count the number of parliamentarians, but he had been told that there were just over 1,500. Looking up into the massive arching chamber, he had no reason to doubt it. The platform holding the Admiral and Captain Moore had multiple audio and video pickups to carry their voices and faces to every corner of the looming room. The prosecutor's platform was configured in the same manner, but some distance away. Now, the prosecutor said, late on the third day of the trial, I call Lieutenant Untranslatable proper now to the stand. A set of doors to Admiral's right opened, and another bug of the same species as the prosecutor walked in and took the stand. A minor functionary administered some sort of oath. Lieutenant, untranslatable proper now, please tell us your last posting and mission. I was posted on the untranslatable proper now ship's name as a senior communications officer, sir. We were ordered to the Turliac homeworld as a defensive screen against these uh, humans. The Admiral was mostly unfamiliar with the bug's language, but he recognized disgust even across the involutionary camp. Can you tell us about the mission, Lieutenant? The prosecutor asked. Yes, sir. Commodore Andromfleetable Provenal made contact with the human ship. Their Admiral told us that he had no intention of standing down. He blamed us for some historical crime. He said that he and his people were looking for revenge. Now, Lieutenant, did your Commodore give these invaders an opportunity to surrender? Yes, sir. The Commodore practically begged the aliens to leave. Nobody in the service looks forward to a battle. And what was the aliens' response? He opened fire, sir, and they made a massive fleet, and we were hard-pressed immediately. Our intel did not accurately estimate the size of their fleet, sir, but we're used to bad intel. There was a few chuckles from the Parliament at this. The Admiral supposed bad intel was one of the universe's constants. How did the battle end, Lieutenant? The Prosecutor asked. We fought for several days. Space battles are slower than what you see in the vids. We lost hundreds of ships, including several capital ships. The humans were the ruthless fighters. They had little experience in fighting above a planet. That much was clear. But what they lacked in experience, they made up for in enthusiasm. Every one of them was determined to hurt us. They lost more ships than us, but that only seemed to encourage them more. I've never seen an opponent to set on destruction. The lieutenant shook his head as though lost in a memory. That wasn't how they won. After the battle, they reviewed the sensor logs and found a small ship launched with the Admiral's heavy cruiser. The prosecution enters logs 15562P to Exhibit 7. The prosecutor nodded to one of the assistants at the table. 
A data package blipped on the terminal of every parliamentarian and on the captain's pad. Please continue, Lieutenant. The small ship couldn't have held more than a few of the aliens. It latched onto the Commodore ship and somehow uh, it cut its way in. Approximately one, one hour, hour later, the untranslatable proper noun ship name began falling out of orbit. It fell into the planet and their engines must have been set to overload. The explosion ignited the atmosphere of the Turliac homeworld and all but destroyed the land below it. If it please the court, the prosecution enters video recording 9913B17QR as Exhibit 8. The prosecutor tapped a button on the digital display in his hand. The lights in the room dimmed, and a giant holographic projection materialized in the middle of the chamber over the Admiral's head. It showed the Tony Comwell and thousands of ships around it. The biggest ship blinked red and started falling towards the planet. As it fell, the Admirals heard several gasps from the parliamentarians nearest him. Just as it happened in real life, the holographic display showed the sterilization of the Turniac homeworld. The fires raged, the air burned, the land erupted, and the Turniac were extinguished. The Admiral held his face carefully neutral. When the world was finished burning, the hologram slowly faded from view. The lights came back up much more slowly than they went down. The room was as silent as a grave. The prosecutor said, your honors, given the lateness of the hour, I request we recess for the day and finish the witness testimony fresh tomorrow morning. The three justices glanced at each other and then nodded. The chief justice called for a recess. The admiral was escorted back to his holding cell by burly guards that had been his ever-present companions ever since arriving at the manor. That evening, sitting at the dinner in the briefing room, the captain said, The prosecutor is pretty slick. The humans had installed jammers and white noise generators so that they could speak in privacy, without worrying about the Union eavesdropping. What do you mean, Captain? The Admiral asked. We dragged out the morning testimony on purpose, all those questions that we couldn't figure out the purpose for. They were stalling tactics. Then, in the afternoon session, he timed it so that a giant hologram of a burning planet was the last thing everyone saw before they left for the day. They'll think on it that all night. Hell, they're probably discussing it at dinner, just like we are. My, aren't the humans such awful creatures, that sort of thing. He's got more questions for the lieutenant tomorrow, so it doesn't look like he spiked the ball too much. Probably a few mop-up questions. How bad is it for us? It's not critical, but it certainly doesn't help. It might be enough to sway those on the fence, but it's not going to move someone from a quit to convict. Everyone already knew the basics of this case. This just made it more visceral for them. Some of them are probably wondering that if we could do something like that to the Turniac, what's to stop us from doing it to them? We've got to make sure that they don't see all of humanity as a threat. You think this trial is about more than just me and one battle, don't you? It has crossed my mind. Mine, too. It is just one old admiral on trial here for an entire species. If I lose, I can carry that. But if humanity loses, that I cannot abide, Captain. Me either, sir. Especially with the third fleet gone, Captain Moore said. The Tuliac invaded Earth by happenstance. A Union invasion will be due directly to our accusations here. Even if we win this trial, how do we know that they won't make a political decision to eliminate Earth threat? Afraid that's about my pay grade, Admiral. My job is to keep you out of Union prison, or at least at a reasonable incarceration. True enough, Captain. 
Unfortunately, this is not above my pay grade. The Admiral ate the last few bites of dinner without tasting them. He opened his mouth to speak as a coughing fit overtook him. The captain stood up to help, but the Admiral waved him off. Are you all right, sir? Captain Moore asked. The Admiral nodded as he regained his breath. His face was reddened and his eyes were watery. Yes, Captain. He managed to get out before a few final spasms overtook him. Yes, the Admiral said when his breath returned. Yes, just a bit of a coughing. This is related to Dr. Almeida's treatment. I wish you would tell me more. I might be able to get you some help, maybe even transfer to a better quarters. It's nothing, Captain. The following morning, the prosecution continued his questions of the lieutenant. Lieutenant, when we ended yesterday, you told us of how the humans had destroyed the Turniac homeworld. Could you tell us what happened next? Yes, sir. We had called for reinforcements when the battle seemed to be dragging on. We had underestimated the humans, a mistake we'll never make again. The lieutenant said as he glanced over to the Admiral. The 307th showed up a few hours after the Turniac was destroyed. Seeing he was outnumbered, the Admiral surrendered conditionally. The commander of the 307th agreed to his terms. And what were those terms, Lieutenant? At the end of the negotiations, the Admiral agreed to surrender peacefully if his crew were allowed to return to their homeworld. Their ships, except those needed to transport the survivors, would be sent to an intercept course to the local star. It seems that leaving that many enemy combatants alive and free would be dangerous. Why did your fleet agree to it? Objection, Your Honours, Captain Moore said. As skilled as the lieutenant is, there is no way that he is privy to command decisions. This is hearsay. The three justices confirmed for a moment before overruling. Captain, the prosecution will be given latitude in this manner. Thank you, your honors, the prosecutor said. Please, lieutenant, why did Union Fleet allow all of those humans to return home? We found out that there weren't that many humans. Most of the ships were highly automated. Their entire crew could fit into three of their supply ships. There were murmurs throughout the parliament at this. But surely your fleets with reinforcements could have destroyed them. Maybe. The humans had already shown that they were willing to die if it meant that they could kill one of us. While we may have been able to win, it would have cost us heavy losses. By taking their ships, the commander of the 307th felt that would resolve the threat with the least amount of losses. Nothing further, your honors, the prosecutor said. Captain Moore stood up and approached the witness stand. Lieutenant, you said that you were a communications officer, yes? Yes. At any point during the incident, did you detect any communications from the human fleet back to Earth? I'm sorry, I, I don't know that word. Earth, the, the human homeworld. Did you detect any communications back to the human homeworld? Not that I recall. So Admiral Chang, after accomplishing his mission, peacefully surrendered to Union forces. Apparently, the lieutenant said, and he didn't call for reinforcements, didn't call for help. Not that we could tell. Lieutenant... Are you familiar with the Turliac? Objection, your honors, the prosecution said. The lieutenant's familiarity with another species is not the issue here. The admiral's crimes against that species are... That species, the Turliac, are the very basis of all this accusation, Captain Moore said. The three justices conferred amongst themselves. Overruled, but tread carefully, counselor, the chief justice said. Thank you, your honors. Now, lieutenant, are you familiar with the Turliac? Some... The Invalid Union is quite large. We have many worlds with vast resources and lots of people. Captain Moore did not miss the implied threat. I'm sure you do, but let's talk about just one world and one people. The Turniac. What do you know about their culture? 
I know it doesn't exist anymore thanks to you humans, the lieutenant said. What about previously, say, um, 30 Earth years ago, the captain asked. The translator automatically made the conversation to local measurements for all the species watching. All I know is that they had several colonies and were good fighters. We fought alongside them for centuries. Good fighters, several colonies. How did they found those colonies, lieutenant? Objection, the prosecutor said. Now we're now giving history lessons instead of conducting a trial. The lieutenant brought their history up. I'm following the thread, your honors, Captain Moore said. The chief justice glanced at one attorney to the other. We'll allow it, but wrap this up, counselor. Thank you, your honors. Turlier colonies, lieutenant. The lieutenant sat for a moment without answering. I believe they focused on inhabited worlds. Inhabited worlds, you say? And what happened to the inhabitants of those worlds when the Turlier arrived? The lieutenant looked at the prosecutor and then back at Captain Moore. I believe that they were assimilated into Turlier society. Assimilated? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Could you clarify? Objection. Cost and answered, the prosecutor said. We grow tired of this, Captain, the Chief Justice said. As do I, Your Honor. I'm sure everyone in this room know who the Turnic were, but I need this on the record. If the Lieutenant would be so kind as to say it, then we can move on, the Captain said. The Chief Justice looked at the Lieutenant and nodded. They were slaves. Thank you, Lieutenant. So the Turnic invaded inhabited worlds and turned the population into slaves. Is that right? Yes. Was this a secret? No. Everyone knew this. So the Invalid Union approved, at least tacitly, of the Turliac turning entire worlds into breeding pens for slaves. Yes, I, I wouldn't know. I'm not a politician. Yet, when one of the slave races decided to put a stop to it, the Union leapt to the defense of the Turliac. Is that right? I suppose. You suppose. You were there, Lieutenant. You were fighting on the side of the slavers, were you not? I was following orders. Orders to defend a slave empire! Orders to defend the Union. You don't get to attack a member world. Certainly not from some backward primitive world like us. You're dangerous, you humans. You stole Union technology to build your ships and turn those weapons against us. So what if the Turlic held a few dirt eaters as slaves? They're better off. They never would have made it off their worlds if the Turlic hadn't come. The Union is the most advanced civilization in this galaxy. And it is our right to rule over the lesser races. The captain stood still, hands at his side, staring at the lieutenant. You believe the Turliac have the right to enslave other races? That the entire Union can enslave other races? You're goddamn right! End of chapter. Chapter 14. Freedom of Choice. Wex stepped into the sunlight for what felt like the first time in a hundred years. He squinted against the glare and reflexively went to hold up his hat. Easy there, mister. His aide, Johnny, had a hold of his arm and went to raise. The other one leaned heavily on a makeshift cane the doctor had come up with. Well, Doc said I need to start getting more exercise, Wex said. Why don't you give me the grand tour? Johnny helped Wex lump along through the thoroughfare. There were few people out this time of day. Wex asked, where is everyone? Johnny said, Working, most likely. They're out in their fields or tending to their herds. Nobody comes to town during the day. They walked slowly, making their way down the street. Wix's cane made a solid clump every time it hit the wooden boards on the sidewalk. Not often, old Mrs. Turbin might make a notion or two visit. Tuesday's market day, so it gets pretty crowded then. Won't you step there? 
They stepped over a raised bowl and waxed. Let's take a break. The general storage just up ahead. Uh, we, we can set a spell there. Doc said I was to make sure that you got out plenty. They stumbled along for another half a block and made it to the store. In front of the general store were two hand-carved wooden chairs. Wex dropped down into one and caught his breath. I never thought just walking down the street would wear me out like that. He could feel his skin starting to get sticky from sweat. Johnny, you like this place? Sure, town's okay. Don't much care for the crowds on the market day, though. No, I mean this world. You ever think about getting away? Away, mister. Earth. We can't go back to Earth. I grew up in stories about how it used to be back there. All those people. Johnny shook his head. I got too much Jericho in me to go back to Earth. Lots of people are scared of leaving home, Wex said. It ain't fear, mister. A turlick strolled out of the store and nodded at Johnny. Morning, Mr. Clicks, Johnny said. Good morning, Johnny. Is this our new uh, visitor? The turlick, Mr. Clicks asked. Oh, yes, sir. Doc says that he needs to get plenty of exercise, so they were out for walks, sir. Had to take a rest, though. Turlick looked Wex up and down. Well, you take care of yourself now, Johnny, Mr. Click said without taking his eyes off Wex. Don't go running around with a bad crowd. No, sir, Mr. Clicks, Johnny said. The Turnick went in his way. I suppose they don't much care for me. Lots of people upset up how you killed George. Not you. Seems like it was just a terrible misunderstanding. But George is still dead, and I miss him. His people enslaved us. There was no way to know that they hadn't done the same thing here. How old are you, Johnny? I'll be twelve in harvest. There's no way you're only wait. You mean twelve in Jericho years, right? Yeah. So that's what? About eighteen Earth years, more or less. Sounds about right, mister. Okay. So you were born here in Jericho, long after they crashed and made it life here? Yes, sir, Johnny said. You've only ever known Tony as friends and neighbors. You never saw what they did to us. But we lost somewhere between four and six billion people to the Turnick slave trade, including the founders of this colony. Most of those people are still out there. We haven't even brought back half a billion people yet. Over 90% of all humans enslaved and stolen from Earth are still gone. Still enslaved. Maybe dead, for all we know. Am I sorry I plugged one good Turlyak? That I shot your friend? Yes. But if you put me in that same situation on another planet, I'd squeeze the trigger just the same. Just as fast. Johnny looked over Wex's shoulder. Wex turned and saw Major standing over there. Write the speech, Wax. Did the council come to a decision yet? The meeting was a while ago. Still debating. I don't think you standing in the middle of the street saying that you'd start shooting Turliak given half the chance is going to help your case, though, the mayor said. Give me a shuttle and I'll be out of your hair in no time. You know that I'm not going to do that. You don't like our privacy, Mr. Wax. What about him? Wax asked, looking his thumb back at Johnny. Don't your kids deserve the chance to decide for themselves? And what happens when Doc dies? Who's going to take care of you then? We'll make do, as always, the mayor said. We'll die. Just another twenty or thirty thousand bodies to add to the Turdyx bill. Mr. Wax, you seem to have a real problem letting people make up their own minds, the mayor said. No, I have a problem helping people commit suicide. Mr. Why are you so sure we'll die? Johnny asked. Because that's what will happen. You don't have vaccines, antibiotics, x-rays, hell. A broken leg could end up killing someone in a place like this. People survive for thousands and thousands of years without any of those things, the mayor said. And they died by the time they were forty. They're going to suffer and die for no reason, Wax said. Then he looked into the mayor's eyes and saw no doubt in there. He looked at Johnny and saw wide open eyes with no trace of fear. 
He felt fight drain from him and slumped back in his chair. This, this is fucked up. Three days later, Wex was woken by a terrible stream followed by a thunderous boom that nearly shook him out of his bed. He threw on his clothes and quickly as he could and he grabbed his cane. He was still putting on his shirt when he made it outside. The early morning hours were dark, but now quite awake. People were in the streets in their nightclothes. Mothers held crying children, fathers carried clubs, human and turdy looked to the skies with fear and wonder. The star was circling back and getting closer. The ship resolved into a human-built shuttle resting upon glowing thrusters. The shuttle landed 200 meters outside of town. Wex hobbled out to meet the shuttle as fast as he could. Stay back! Wex shouted at the townsfolk as he pulled through them. The shuttle cracked open and armored soldiers began pouring out into Jericho's sand. Wex waved his arms to flag them down. Lower those clubs! Wex yelled at the men behind him. When he looked back at the shuttle, standing on the landing ramp, he saw Mandy. She ran out to meet him. The humans from Earth and the humans from Jericho met in the open area between the town and the shuttle, both wary of the other. Stand down! Stand down! Wex was shouting himself hoarse, trying to keep the violence from erupting. You never skip an appointment, do you? Mandy said, smiling as she reached Wex. Man, I'm glad to see you. Wex hugged Mandy, startling himself and her. Crap! Janks! Wex heard our shout. He looked back at the saw handful of Turliac wandering out of the town. Ceasefire! Ceasefire! Master Chief, these are friendlies! No, sir, those are janks! Wex turned and made his way back towards the town a few meters. He put himself between the earthlings and the Jerichoans. Master Chief, he said, hold your fire. Wex directly in the line of fire between the Navy and the Marine forces and the citizens of Jericho. Lower your weapon! Jack said so quietly that it nearly was a whisper. The Navy and the Marine forces looked to the Master Chief, who looked at Wex, slowly. So slowly that Wex thought he may have been imagining at first, the gun swung from the turnic down to the dust. Wex turned and took the turnic from Jericho. You're safe! For the first time in his life, he saw what fear looked like on a turnic's face. What's going on? Nothing, Wex said. The mayor has joined the group by then. Nothing at all. Turns out Jericho was just a rumor. The mysterious human colony doesn't exist. You sure? Mandy asked. Yes, Wex said. Let's get home. Mandy, the troops, and Wex walked back to the new shuttle. The townspeople of Jericho watched them load up. Oh, wait, he said. He limped back to the cloud and found Johnny. Thank you for watching out for me, Wex said to Johnny. He slipped a small oblong device into Johnny's hand. This is the key for my shuttle. If you ever decide that maybe life on the farm isn't all that it's cranked up to be, come find Earth. It's loaded in the autopilot. Ship damn near flies itself. Johnny smiled. Well, uh, I think uh, that'll come to that, uh, but thanks anyway. Johnny pocketed the key. Mandy reached Wex and helped him back to the shuttle. We've got to hurry. Why? Everyone's been ordered to somewhere called the manor, Mandy said. What do you mean, everyone? And what the hell's the manor? Everyone, first fleet, second fleet, whatever's left of third fleet, everyone, Mandy said, as the shuttle door sealed behind them. The town of Jericho watched as the thrusters lit and a new star was briefly born in the pre-dawn hours. End of chapter. Chapter 15. A Man of Conscience and of Conviction. Good morning, Admiral, Captain Moore said as he entered the room. The Admiral was already seated in the small conference table. Morning, Captain. What's so important that you had the guards get me up an hour early? 
Last night after dinner, the prosecutor contacted me. He is offering a deal. You plead guilty and he'll make sure that you get a life imprisonment at one of the better facilities. Quite nice, from what I hear. And, uh, the rest of it? Humanity will have to surrender the fleets, most of them anyway, and we'll be allowed to keep a few ships for defense. We'll also have to turn over all data we recovered from the Turniac. We'll be quarantined in our solar system, but under the protection of the Invalid Union. The Admiral looked off to the side and thought for a moment. There was a lake not far from where I grew up. Everyone said that it was fed by an underground spring. Don't know if that's true, but the water was always so clear and cold. Even at the height of summer, it rarely got above 20 C. It was difficult to get to. Even the locals rarely went there. But I couldn't get enough of it. It was quiet, and I could be alone most of the time, anyway. I'd take a back lunch and stay up there all day, whenever I could sneak away from school or home. There was an old tree that should have fallen years before that hung over the lake. I'd spend hours climbing that tree and jumping into the freezing water. Even now, I remember what that first blast of cold water hitting my skin felt like. The Admiral looked up at the captain. I am aware that I am very many more days behind than ahead of me. Sitting in my cell, I have my thoughts to keep me company, and my thoughts have been drawn back to that lake. I miss that lake. I'm not even sure it exists anymore, except in my memories. Should I take the deal, Admiral? Earth isn't going to give up those ships so easily, Captain. The trial will conclude today, sir. Once we make our closing arguments, it goes to Parliament, and there's nothing we can do after that. The Admiral sighed and stifled a cough. Tell the prosecutor I'll plead guilty and take my punishment, but we cannot speak for the fleet. He won't like that, but he'll understand. An alarm klaxon sounded on the hallway. Both officers looked on towards the door. Moments later, one of the guards burst in and yelled at the Admiral, pulling the old man to his fleet. I don't know what you're saying, the Admiral shouted back. You're going too fast for the translator. A flat dull boom echoed down the hallway. The guard glanced over his shoulder very carefully, spoke. Humans, invade, you, stop. Humans, invade, oh crap, the Admiral said. The captain looked up at him. Those are breaching pods and weapons fire we're hearing, the Admiral said. I'm being rescued, it seems. The Admiral looked back at the guard and said, Yes, I see why you're agitated. Put me down and I'll see if I can get them to stop. The Admiral's voice was smooth and controlled. The three beings stepped to the door of the interview room, and the captain carefully looked around the doorframe. Nothing but some smoke out. Wait, I see a flickering light around the bend. Step back, Captain, the Admiral said. The fighting is coming this way, and we're safer in here than out there at the moment. He turned to the guard and said, Can you contact your people? Tell them to cease fire and let me talk to the humans. You know escape, the guard said. No, not trying to escape. But I can't very well ask my people to stop shooting when your people are shooting at me. The guard pondered that for a moment, then pulled out a communicator from his belt. His words were too fast and too dense for the translator to keep up with, so the admiral only picked up a few bits here and there. Okay, it's done. Outside, contain humans, you talk. The guard thrust his meaty hand out, offering the communicator to the admiral. All forces, this is Admiral Chiang. Ceasefire, I say again, ceasefire. The admiral heard a distant sounds of battle slowly die off. 
All right, I want a representative of each side, someone with authority to negotiate. Union forces, let's meet in Parliament Room. Human forces, just have the Union forces show your negotiator where to meet. We're all operating under a flag of truce. No attacks until negotiations are ongoing. The Admiral clicked off the communicator and tossed it back to the guard. What's your plan? The captain asked. Don't have one, but it'll take time for them to get there and I should be able to figure something out. The Admiral, the captain, and the guard cautiously made their way along the same route that they'd followed for the last several months. They passed charred marks along the walls, a couple of dead aliens, and several sectors that had lost power. They climbed over debris one junction short of the Parliament Rotunda. The pristine beauty of the Union's jewel was marred with disfigured by the human surprise attack. When they arrived in the Parliament Chamber, they saw the Prosecutor, the Chief Justice, and two Union security officers on one side of the room. On the other side of the room, they saw half a dozen faceless humans in full battle armor. One of the humans stepped forward and popped up his faceplate. Admiral, I am Agent Wexler. We're here to rescue you. This is another sneak attack upon the Union. These violent primitives cannot be trusted. Will you both shut up? The Admiral said. He walked over to the portion of the collapsed seating and found the table that he'd been sitting at yesterday. Grab a chair and sit, the Admiral said. He found an upturned seat, flipped it upright, brushed off the seat and sat down. The prosecutor and Wax approached from their respective sides. They kept their eyes on each other until forced to look down to avoid tripping. Eventually, both parties made their way to the table and sat across from each other. Now what the hell is going on? They attacked without provocation, the prosecutor said. The admiral held up a hand to silence the prosecutor. We came to get you, sir, Wex said. When we say we, agent. Wex, just Wex, admiral. I mean we, all three fleets, what we have of each, uh, are here in force. We took out five Union heavy cruisers on the way in. They've called in reinforcements, so we should really get going. No, Wex. What? Wex asked. Humans have no respect for the law or upholding their agreements, the prosecutor said. I'm staying right here, the admiral said. He started coughing, and it took a few moments to stop. Must be all the dust in the air, he said. Not to put a fine point in it, Admiral, but uh, we've gone through an awful lot of trouble here, Beck said. I'm sure you have, son, and I am grateful, but this needs to be done. Pull your men back and get out of here. They cannot leave. They must answer for the unprecedented attack on the manor. The prosecutor said, yeah, I agree with the bug, Beck said, but not leaving. Not without you, sir. I can't advise you to free justice, sir, Captain Moore said, but this opportunity isn't something you should dismiss lightly. I understand, Captain. You should go with them, the Admiral said. Sir, this trial isn't over, and you're still my client, the Captain said. Do none of you understand what an order is? The Admiral asked. He turned between Wex and the Captain Moore and said, Take the doctor and her staff and get out of here. Evacuate your team before the Union reinforcements arrive. Sir, I am pretty sure that I'd be shot if I come back without you, Wex said. So I really kind of need you to come with me, and we're on the clock here. Agent, you're a civilian, so I don't expect you to understand, but the military will take acceptable losses. And trading one man, even an admiral, for three fleets is a deal they'll take every day of the week. Admiral, Wex said, I have a mission. I've sacrificed just as much for my fleet as you have for yours. I'm tired of acceptable losses. How about a win? Just, just this once. No, agent. Wex shook his head. He reached into his pocket and the room changed immediately. The two Union guards shouldered their weapons, much made the human troops snap their weapons up. 
Wex rose, with his hand in his pocket, and time stopped. Son, I take great care of what you do next, Admiral said. Wex gently brought out his hand, and he narrated his movements. I have a communications device, and I'd like to set it on the table. It is a round disc that projects a hologram. Is everyone okay with that? The Union guards never wavered. The human troops didn't blink. The Chief Justice walked over, and Wex placed a hand on Wex's shoulder. I propose, the Justice said, that the human slowly places his hands on the table, and I will retrieve his communicator. The Chief Justice looked around and saw no objections. Slowly now, human, he said as Wex placed both hands on the table. The Chief Justice pulled a disc from Wex's pocket and placed it on the table. There, he said, a standard holographic projector. It looks like a Turliac system. Let's all lower our weapons and let this discussion continue. He looked to the Union troops and nodded for them to point their weapons down. The human swallowed suit, slightly delayed and slightly slower. I'm going to activate the projector now, Wex said. Anyone feel like shooting me will just go ahead and do it. Wex reached out and pressed the activation button on the side, but he did take his time doing so. A bluish hologram jumped into life above the table. Two ship's bridges were visible side by side. A woman with long graying hair stepped into view on the left, and a stocky man with a heavy brow turned to face the camera on the right. Admiral Orlov, Admiral Paulson, Admiral Cheng greeted them. Fleet Admiral Cheng, Admiral Orlov said. Task Force Fidelity stands ready to execute your orders. Admiral Cheng noted the increase in rank that she had slipped in. As does Task Force Defiance, Fleet Admiral, Admiral Paulson said. Fleet Admiral Cheng. The title placed him over the other two admirals, giving him complete control of the combined forces of humanity. He could order total war against the Union, wiping out their capital and political leadership with a word. He could unleash a living hell across the stars just by saying words. For that moment, he was the most powerful human alive. The most powerful man who had ever lived. Weapons that were unthinkable even a generation ago stood ready to impose his will. A feeling of history, of being at a crossroad that would determine the destinies of countless lives, pressed down upon him like a physical weight, but only for a moment. Admirals, I... The Admiral started. He stopped and looked down and blinked to clear his eyes before looking back up at the holograms. I thank you for what you've done here, and I am glad I am not forgotten. He coughed into his hand. But I will be staying... Please recall your people and stand down. Sir, are you sure? Admiral Orlov asked. Admiral Natalia, yes, I am sure, Fleet Admiral Cheng said. Sir, Admiral Paulson said, the Union will not react well to this. No, Julian, I expect they won't. That's why I'm charging you both with ensuing humanity's survival. Tell Commander. Tell them that's what always has been the most important. Fidelity, defiance, and vengeance... They're all just facets of survival. Make sure Dr. Almeida gets home safe as well, please. Dr. Almeida, she's there with you, sir? Admiral Orloff asked. She is. She's been treating me since we left Erliak, Fleet Admiral Cheng said. Admiral Orloff cocked her head to the side and then nodded. Attention on the bridge, Admiral Orloff shouted. She snapped a crisp salute, holding her hand to her head to the side and then nodded. Turn up. Admiral Paulson shouted as he too snapped his hand to his forehead. Every person on both the bridges jumped to their feet, regardless of what they were doing, and saluted the hologram of Fleet Admiral Cheng. 
He rose to his feet and returned their salutes. Godspeed, sir, Admiral Olaf said. The channel to both ships cut out and the hologram evaporated. You should both return to your ships, Fleet Admiral Cheng said to Wax and Captain Moore. Take every one with you. Still don't like this, Admiral, Wax said. It's Fleet Admiral now, Captain Moore said, and we should go. Contact your people, Fleet Admiral Cheng said to the Chief Justice, and tell them the humans are leaving peacefully. They will not fire if they are not fired upon. The Chief Justice nodded and stepped away to make the call. Sir, I am, Captain Moore said. You did your job admirably, Captain, Fleet Admiral Cheng said. I couldn't have asked for a better lawyer. He held out his hand and the captain shook it. I'll walk you to the door if you don't mind. I'd like you to patch into a hologram at a wax port. I think I still need a lawyer. Wax gathered his team and began to leave. Captain, if you'd like to follow orders, we'll escort you to your ship. We've got people evacuating Dr. Almeida and the other humans already. One more thing, Captain, Fleet Admiral Chang said as he pulled Captain Moore aside for a quiet word. Wax's radio crackled to life. Say again, Wax said pushing the earpiece further in to hear better. A moment later, he looked up at his team and then back to Captain Moore. Captain, we've got Union forces hitting the pickup ships. Their full force will be here shortly. Captain Moore turned to face Wax. His face had grown pale and he felt unsteady on his feet. Yes, sir, we, we, we should go. He turned to face Fleet Admiral Chang one last time. I'll, um, goodbye, sir. Wex and his team was Captain Moore away and they made their way back to the breaching pods and finally to the human fleet. As they were in transit, Fleet Admiral Chang went back to the prosecutor and Chief Justice. I'd still like to finish the trial. He looked up at the damaged parliament chamber, seeing dust covering every available surface, entire sections lost under collapsed seating, doors jammed by debris. Can you broadcast a trial from here instead? A coughing foot overtook him in the middle of the question. His hand came away red. Excuse me, gentlemen, Fleet Admiral Chang said. Hazards of the occupation, uh, can we broadcast from here? If the pickups aren't too badly damaged, yes, the prosecutor said. But of your representation, he'll tie in from the ship. We're pretty much done, though, so it shouldn't be too hard for him. When Captain Moore was settled aboard the human warship, when the prosecutor had set up a second table for his own use, and when the Chief Justice had found a chair to use and a chunk of masonry as used as a gravel, the trial resumed. Your Honor, Captain Moore said as he rose in the hologram. If it, um, if it pleases the court, my client wishes to make a, uh, statement. The video and audio of the captain and the trial were carried to the quarters around the manor. The parliamentarians were watching from the comfort of whatever sections hadn't been too badly damaged in the human's attack. This is most irregular, Counselor, but today seems to be a day of irregularity. We will allow it, the justice said. Thank you, Your Honor, Captain Moore said. He nodded to Chang and sat down. The fleet admiral stayed seated and leaned forward to talk to the audio pickup. He paused for a moment before starting. I am an old man, so I apologize if I ramble a bit. When I was a young man, I dreamed of travel and adventures as young men do. I dreamed of excitement and intrigue. When I was older, I dreamed of stability, of home and earth. Now that I am an old man, I dream of peace and tranquility. It is our nature to want that which we do not have. It is what pushes us forward and what makes us grow. 
One of the court attendants had found some portable water stalls and brought it up for the litigants' use. The feet admiral paused to take a sip of water. The room of the glass turned pinkish when the admiral set it down. The Turlier conveyed to my world after I was a grown man, already devoted to my uniform and my duty. The Turliac were a terrible enemy. More advanced than us, more ruthless than us. They surprised us, and they won. We managed to put up a fight for nearly two years, but it wasn't enough. The fleet admiral paused and coughed into his handkerchief. He pulled from his pocket. Our militaries had been extinguished. Our hope had been all but killed. Humanity was to become a slave race. Nothing more than some chattel for some of the very races sitting in judgment of me today. The fleet admiral looked directly at the repaired video pickup and into the eyes of hundreds of species. Our destiny had been stolen. Our birthright taken from us. We were a broken people. But humans are remarkably adaptable, resilient, even as our people were being shipped off the world by hundreds of thousands, and even as they beat us and starved us, we adapted. A resistance was born in the back alleys and the dark rooms, whispered secrets about how we should fight. The Admiral paused for another drink. I led a small resistance cell myself, even as I served my master. I plotted his downfall. I was a cook for the Turniac functionary. He thought it amusing to take one of the few remaining military men and put him to work in what was considered the lowest, most menial position they had. But I did my job, and I tried not to be noticed. I endured many beatings all the same. The Admiral was growing tired. It had been an early morning and a long day. He squeezed the bridge of his nose and rubbed his eyes, and then pulled a lungful of air to continue. When the time came to fight back, I killed my master with a cervix tray. I beat him to death with my own hands before he realized what was happening. The fleet admiral stared into the middle distance and said, That may have been the happiest moment in my life. The fleet admiral refocused and continued on. We eventually won our freedom and stole their ships. The data we recovered showed us how to build our own starships. We cannibalized seven moons from our own solar system to build three massive fleets. But you have heard about them already. The fleet admiral paused to smile to himself. I, of course, was in command of third fleet, Task Force Vengeance. To save us all sometime, yes, I am guilty of all those things of which I have been accused. I destroyed the Turliac as a civilization. They are remnants left, but there are no threats to my people, or anyone else's, I burned their homeworld to cinders. The admiral coughed into his handkerchief again, and it came away red with blood. But it was during the time of building the fleets that we also read about the Turdiac Society, about the Invalid Union. We learned much more than you'd think. We learned that there are certain similarities between all life in the universe. I do not pretend to understand the science behind it, but I did understand the results. The fleet admiral gripped the edge of the table as he fought another coughing fit. Flecks of blood slipped from between his lips. But Dr. Almeida understands it. I met her decades ago, before the Turliac invaded, before they killed my sister. Dr. Almeida and my sister were college roommates, both studying biology. Dr. Almeida was staggeringly bright. After a resistance was won, I put her to work on a terrible biological weapon. We formally banned biological weapons for battles on Earth. 
But space, against an overwhelming enemy, we have a phrase on Earth. By any means necessary, we would wage total war in such a situation. The fleet admiral coughed into his handkerchief again, a wet hacking sound, turning the handkerchief red. The, <laughs> the only issue was how to deliver it. Well, the living host was the easiest and most reliable. Oh, uh, don't blame yourselves too much for missing it. The doses were stored in the food we brought. I'd been pre-dosed with a special enzyme that would activate the disease. I've been walking to and from myself for months, spreading tiny germs on every surface that I could. Dr. Almeida would wander the station with tiny samples of my saliva. Captain Moore would carry the disease to and from the docking bay every time he'd come to talk to me, though he did it unknowingly. Our people began receiving inoculations against his disease years ago. It is not too far from a number of diseases of our homeworld, so we have some amount of natural immunity. Except for me, I was patient zero, and I needed the full brunt of the disease to properly incubate it. This disease has now spread to every planet in the Union. The doctor tells me it has a long incubation period to maximize its spread. You are contagious the entire time. This manor of yours is an important travel hub. It was an ideal place to infect the galaxy. The parliamentarians and diplomats here carried the seeds of their species destruction every time they went home. The admiral coughed blood into his handkerchief again, and the prosecutor looked on in horror. There are very few union species where this won't work. A couple of silicate-based life forms and one or two very exotic biochemistry but they contribute no more than 5% of the Union's martial power. Conventional methods will deal with that threat. You're, you're insane, the prosecutor said. Maybe, the Admiral said, but I am also a patriot. You will rot in the deepest pit of the afterlife for this, the Chief Justice said. Oh, I am no angel. I am not even a good man. I may, in fact, be a demon, but I fight on the side of angels. And if there is any justice in this world after this, I will meet you who did nothing while the Turlia enslaved worlds across the galaxy in hell, the fleet admiral said to the chief justice. I would just as soon see every one of your species extinct, swept into a dustbin of history. You have rationalized the most horrific brutalities and depravities in the name of cultural acceptance and from sheer laziness. But I promised others that I would give you one chance to repent. Here is my offer. Surrender. Surrender your fleets, your technology, your weapons, your governments, your institutions. Surrender yourselves completely. You will be subject to Earth's rule. We will take over the worlds and you will become client states. We will allow you to keep your religions and you will still have autonomy in minor matters. We will grant you treatment for this disease. The fleet admiral paused for another coughing fit overcame him. The cuffs of his uniform were starting to become stained with blood. I would advise alacrity in your decision. The first terminal cases should have already appeared in some of your cities. Within a month, either your people will be dead or your governments will be. Humanity, however, survives. That is our strength. That is why you lost we are a race of survivors. 
the fleet admiral wheezed and foamed flat on his lower lip. His pallid skin has sunk around his eyes as the wild light burned behind him. Those of you who would pledge their enmity and stand against us, I bid you farewell. The universe will not miss you. Those of you who would pledge your fealty and stand with us, I welcome you to the first Terran Empire. End of story. This is a special thank you to the one, the only, the legendary Erak Hino, who has become the only Tier 6 patron. I just want to thank the T5 patrons and channel members. Bob the Dragon, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Australia the Dreamer, Trigan95, Pudigiol, Meridian117, Olivia, Jordan Buxborn, Angry Marine, Albarden Gasta, and Barky. Thank you very much. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. There are links down below, both to support this channel and for the author of this fiction. Anyways, I hope you all have a fantastic one, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.